Artemis is roughly halfway through its 26-day mission, unmanned test mission to the moon, and it has overwhelmingly proved, if you know how to look at the images, the existence of the ancient artificial ET domes all over the moon. Now, I know a lot of you folks have been emailing me and saying, where are the domes? It's because you don't know what you're looking for. And we have probably spent hundreds of hours, at least 100 hours, maybe more, describing very carefully, very specifically, what you should look for. You're not going to see little salad bowls upside down. You're not going to see, you know, the moon basin, Clavius uh, crater from, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey. What you will see on these images is a brilliant, glowing line completely circumferencing the moon. And we're going to describe again tonight, one more time with feeling, what we're going to be seeing, what we are seeing on these images. However, before we get to that, I seem to have... uh, Somehow my other screen has gone dark. That is very weird, okay? So what I need to do is I need to get out of that. I need to refresh. I need to click on this. Sorry, folks, this is Backstage Radio. I have the intriguing feeling that someone is trying to interfere with this program because we've had all kinds of electronic gremlins, and normally we don't have anywhere near as many as we're having tonight. Isn't that special? Okay, let me go to this, and that will take me to the guest page. And then I click on my name, which takes us to radio with pictures down below in my items. Okay, for those of you who are not familiar with the show, and we have a lot of new listeners, both from uh, my conversations with George on Coast last week and with Clyde Lewis uh, earlier this week, So there's a lot of new people looking, and how do I know? Because our little globe, which is at the very top of the home page, is lit up like a Christmas tree. In fact, let me just go check it here. And that means there are people from all over the world paying attention, listening to us, kind of, uh, uh, you know, logging into our home page. If I can get the darn thing to work, why is it not working? That's so weird. So weird. Okay, there we are. And yes, yes, the globe is lit up, including there's someone who's on a um, on a uh, uh, oil derrick off the coast of Africa, who periodically checks in, and you can even see him there in the uh, tabulation of who's listening and who's not. inadvertently because of some good souls inside who wanted us to see this stuff and grab it before it all went away or went into the big sanitized file because the images coming outside of NASA are not those that are going in. How do I know? Because all I have to do is compare them and you can see they are not the same. Well, we're going to go through some of that tonight as well. So for those of you who are new, to the other side of midnight, you go to the other side of midnight.com. 
you click on tonight's banner at the top, it says Artemis 1 confirms the ancient lunar domes. And then under it is subheadline, why should we give a damn? That's the next three up. We're going to try to show you why this should be near the top of your priority list. If you want things on Earth right now, tonight, which are really not going very well, if you want them to change, this is the biggest thing going which can change things. And you can believe me or not believe me, take your pick. So you click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see where it says fast links to items under that banner. Click on my name, that takes you down to the section of Radio with Pictures, which features my materials. Uh, item number one, this is the connection directly to the NASA Artemis blog. It says Flight Day 10, Orion enters distant retrograde orbit. Um, that's the background. Anything you want to know about the, the mission, what's going on. There's all kinds of links there to ancillary material, to backup databases, to images, to videos. Everything is in that one link, and it's number one. Now, if you want to get more detailed, under it is item 1A. This is the official Artemis reference guide. It's a PDF. You can either read it um, in your browser, or you can download it and store it and refer to it. It's like one of those uh, Johnny Carson routines. You know, everything you ever wanted to know about Artemis and didn't know who to ask, well, there's where you look. It's 90 pages. It's actually, that's kind of interesting because this is now the 21st century. We have a whole generation, if not more, actually two, since we went to the moon the first time with a human-rated spacecraft, i.e. the Apollo uh, program. You would think in that 40 years, give or take, that they would have realized that a whole bunch of people grew up who have no idea about going to the moon, no idea about orbits, celestial mechanics, uh, rocket technology, anything. Instead, the Artemis Reference Guide is 90 pages, of which a lot of pages are kind of big, splashy color images and graphics that frankly don't really tell you an awful lot. Now, by comparison, if you go down to item number two, this is the Apollo News Reference from the Grumman Aerospace Corporation created for the Apollo program, for the half of the program that Grumman controlled, which was the construction and flying of the lunar module. That's the lunar module sitting there in the photograph with uh, Buzz Aldrin putting up the solar wind collector in front of it, and Neil Armstrong took the picture. If you look at that reference, if you open it up, it's a PDF, just like the uh, Artemis reference above it, that press kit, as we used to call them, is over almost 300 pages long. 300 pages, which is everything you'd ever want to know, not just about the, loon, the lunar module, but about the Apollo command module, the mission profile, celestial mechanics, even discussion of the origin history of the moon, why Apollo was going, what we'd be using it for in the out years beyond Apollo, etc. Uh, how do I know? Because that's item number three. It's called the Apollo News Reference from the Grumman Press Kit, The Moon. And the reason I know is because I wrote it. 
NASA, for some reason, and Grumman asked me way back then, and when you read my bio at the end of the piece, you'll see that really I have no idea why they tapped me on the shoulder. They wanted me to do, for the press covering this mission, the Apollo missions around the world, they wanted me to write the damn press kit section on the moon. So you can say perfectly legitimately that I had a tiny, tiny part of the Apollo program itself. So when I say that the uh, Apollo references for the press were infinitely more detailed, more useful, more complete, more synoptic, covering almost everything you'd ever want to know, I know whereof I speak. And it's really been a pain in the you-know-what to try to find out certain specifics about the Artemis program by comparison. In fact, if I was of a um, conspiratorial bent, I'd almost say maybe that was on purpose. But, but no, I wouldn't say that. No, no, of course not. Okay, item number four. This is so serendipitous because I was kind of trying to think about the frame to put around tonight's show. And it, it, I was going to focus a lot on the data, on the images, how they have totally, amazingly confirmed not just previous Apollo mission data on the moon and the CIA data on the domes going back to Kennedy's administration, but they also confirm what the Chinese have been sending us from their unmanned lunar missions. And I know there are some folks in the audience listening who have this real bug up there, you know what, about the Chinese. Well, forget the damn Chinese Communist Party. That's a veneer on 5,000 plus years of recorded Chinese history. And that's shining through in them providing us, however they're doing it, with real data on the real moon, which of course brings us to what really happened with COVID-19 and who was the victim of whom. And that's a very long, complicated discussion that we will not have tonight. Anyway, item number four. As I was preparing this afternoon for the show, uh, one of our listeners, one of our uh, devoted listeners, sent me a link to an op-ed piece in the Washington Post. Now, because the Washington Post, like all other papers, is desperately looking for money, because advertising has dried up and subscribers are drying up, and so they, they charge for everything, including what's printed uh, on the, on the, on the uh, Internet. But Keith figured out a way to copy into a PDF this very interesting opinion piece by an op-ed writer, and I can't for the life of me figure out why they wanted him to, uh, to write this piece. Uh, his name is David Von Drehl. Don, B-O-N, capital D-R-E-H-L-E. He's a regular columnist. He writes a, an op-ed piece, uh, I guess, every day on a whole bunch of different things. Anyway, this was an opinion piece he wrote on Friday afternoon, which says, quote, Artemis says to the moon, prove our human limits. And then David Von Drool, um spends several dozen paragraphs telling us why Artemis is a dead end, why humans can't live in space or on the moon or go on to Mars or inhabit the solar system, and they'd better stay home and just send robots because, of course, nobody can really live in outer space. 
And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, what a special timing. Because that, of course, Friday, Friday afternoon, was literally as the our Artemis mission successfully did a burn that placed the Orion spacecraft, the one that's going to carry people on the next mission, into what was called this distant uh, uh, orbit of the moon, distant retrograde orbit of the moon, DRO. Retrograde because it's going backwards on the backside of the moon to where the moon is going to the left. It's going to the right. It, the moon moves around the Earth toward the left. The spacecraft is moving in a, in a um, clockwise fashion. And so it's called a retrograde orbit. It's where they can hang out for the next six, seven days and test, again, continuing all kinds of systems that will overstress the vehicle before, in a couple of years, they put people inside it. And it had been performing brilliantly well up until something weird happened after the outward-powered flyby Monday morning. Because a few hours later, I don't know whether any of you caught this, but suddenly on a spacecraft which has incredibly few problems, I mean, they're literally at the level of, well, this voltage is slightly higher than that voltage, and they can't quite figure out. In other words, they're getting more power. The environmental control system is working better. Their fuel usage is less. Everything is plus, 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 plus. And then suddenly, without warning, they lose all connection on Monday morning, just a few hours after this close-up burn, 81 miles above the moon, where we got incredible video before the burn that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the show. They suddenly lost all contact with Orion, the spacecraft, Orion and the service module combination, which has no people in it. Remember, they're just mannequins and instruments, and it's all being flown by very sophisticated computer programs, kind of like an Airbus on steroids. But they lost complete connection, both outward bound, you know, sending, broadcasting, and receiving from the DSN, the Deep Space Network, this array of huge 200-plus-foot antennas spaced uh, about 120 degrees around the world, so you have overlapping coverage and nothing out there in space is ever supposed to be get lost. And in this case, something just at the moon's distance suddenly just drops off, off everything. And for an incredibly agonizing period of time, they had no communication. And suddenly, like Spock and old Star Trek, you know, they switched from circuit A to circuit B. And bingo, there was Orion after exactly, wait for it, 47 minutes. And I looked at that and I thought, oh my. Could you remember on the launch night uh, or the pre-hours of, of uh, launch morning when they were supposed to launch at 104 on the morning of Wednesday, the 16th, and then they had some problems, and they worked in mightily, and they fixed them, and then they wound up launching. Remember when Orion and the Artemis One mission was formally launched from Cape Canaveral after the delay from their planned launch time of 104? 7 a.m. Now, why is that 47 interesting? Because if you add 12, which is half a day, which is part of the hyperdimensional calculation, 
That's the numbering system, 12, 24, whatever. And then you add one more. They really launched in terms of uh, central standard time. Um, they launched in Houston time, which is where the mission is controlled, at a symbolic 19.47. So this is something to do with ritual. Ritual. They launch on the ritual 19.5. They launch at the time specified by the ritual. And then they have an outage after they successfully pass around the moon, sending back astonishing video images, which you're going to see shortly. And then they go completely silent. And then it turned back on exactly 47 minutes after. Now, how do I interpret that? I interpret it as the bad guys versus the good guys in NASA. The good guys are trying to show us live what's going on. The bad guys are trying to keep us secret from what's going on. And the 47-minute dropout was basically a threat. If you continue to show us live, provocative images and the world, we will kill this mission. And they underscored it with a dropout of 40 seven minutes. Now, I admit that's totally, totally speculative, except even during the DRO burn the other um, afternoon, on Friday afternoon, they had literally maybe 20 seconds of live video uh, showing a distant Earth 240,000 miles away, if you can barely see, and they didn't even show us uh, any live video during the burn. They showed us animations that are supposedly fed by telemetry signals from the spacecraft. Now, the test of this model will be that we're going to be getting close to the moon again uh, along about this coming, I think it's Wednesday, uh, Wednesday afternoon, as they sweep down in their six-day orbit, and then they'll do a powered burn that will basically send them on a trajectory just six or seven days later uh, west of San Diego in the Pacific Ocean. During that close flyby, down again around 80 miles, this time they should be able to send us live video during the burn because the moon will have moved. The angle between the Earth and the moon and the spacecraft will have changed for going home. And so we should have, should have live link video during that close flyby of the moon. And I'm betting you dollars to Navy beans. They don't show us a damn thing because they've been warned not to. Now, how did this all come about? And this all, again, is crucial uh, background for our conversation this evening. It all came about because several days ago at, at two major press conferences, Mike Serafin, who is the Artemis mission manager, he's kind of like the captain, he announced that, I mean, some reporter, very enterprising reporter, said, why aren't we seeing live video and he went through this long spiel that, well, they were recording everything, but because this burn, when they were close to the moon, was going to take place on the far side of the moon, they couldn't obviously transmit through the moon, so they record everything, and we would be, it would be played back later. He also made a very interesting uh, statement, again, I went through this last Sunday, that, in, that they had to clear their video with something called ITAR which is a State Department regulation about sharing 
American high technology with suspected terrorists in terms of arms distribution, control regulation, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I asked the major question, which is what the hell does ITAR have to do with taking photographs of the moon? Are someone's expecting that we're going to take close-up TV of hidden ET weapons caches on the moon? Yeah, really, right, right. I'm being incredibly facetious. But he made that statement that they had to clear the video, the downlink video, live with this regulatory group or committee or individual as part of a process of releasing NASA video. And last time I looked at the NASA charter, it said it was a civilian space agency. So why is there anything even on the spacecraft that would would not conform to the ITAR regulations? Didn't make any sense. But he went through it twice at two separate press conferences, in essence saying, well, you're not going to get live video because we have to clear it. Then, on the morning of Monday, the 21st, within about three hours after we got off the air on Sunday night, I'm watching, obviously, NASA Select, and bingo, there pops up live video, which we were told was technically impossible. And the reason was supposedly because they were going to be filling the downlink with so much data on the performance of the Orion uh, spacecraft that there wasn't any bandwidth left over to send something as trivial and superficial as live television. Yeah, right. Taxpayers are paying for the mission. The television is thought of as superfluous to data. I'm sorry, folks, but live television to the taxpayer is data because without bucks, there's no Buck Rogers. That's another conversation. But anyway, despite what Seraphin and others had been saying for months and months and months before the attempted launch back in August, suddenly we're getting live television from a few thousand miles on the other side of the moon, and the moon is getting bigger, and the Earth is moving into frame as the spacecraft is curving around under lunar gravity, and we're seeing everything in real time, and we're not supposed to be seeing it without somebody at some censoring television screen saying, no, you can't show that. But instead, we got it all live, and of course, I taped everything. At the press conference following the outbound powered uh, burn, someone very brightly said, Mike, how come, after all you said, how come we got to see live television of everything up until the 34 minutes when the spacecraft literally went behind the moon from the Earth? And he said, well, he said there were some really bright people at the Deep Space Network. Remember them? And they figured out a way to give us more bandwidth so we could broadcast that whole sequence live, which they did. And I'm watching the sequence, and I'm looking at the spacecraft getting closer and the moon getting bigger. And the first thing I notice is, well, it, it doesn't look the way the moon is supposed to look. And so I've spent the last week busily porting shots over 
and making the published imagery from NASA look like the videotape that I recorded live because the shots they've been posting on Flickr, by the way, Keith was able to put up the uh, Flickr direct link to the archive of the Artemis uh, uh, one video and and stills and the uh, you know images. And all you have to do is compare the video with particularly we've got one one uh, loop, one video loop um, on the main page that came through uh, Twitter from the Lockheed Martin people, the Lockheed Corporation, which of course is a prime contractor to NASA in a whole bunch of space missions. And when you look at that video, and I'm going to show you a still from it later later on this morning, when you look at that video, the thing that you will be struck by, I hope, like I was struck by watching all this live, is how incredibly colorful the supposed dead gray moon looked from the other side. When you're looking at the far side, and it's almost a full moon, because the moon is basically lit by sunlight, the sunlight is behind the spacecraft and the camera, and in the distance, quarter million miles beyond, is the Earth, which is almost full as well. So they got to the moon, essentially when it was almost a new moon, as you're looking at the moon from the Earth, all by design, by careful planning, by careful celestial mechanics. And I'm thinking they did this in terms of lighting, so they would see, in fact, the lit far side hemisphere with the sun basically backscattering backwards at the camera as they flew behind the moon as seen from Earth. And the reason that's important, we're going to be spending the rest of our uh, uh, morning discussing because it's an astonishing, amazing sequence of revelatory images, which as I said, by recording them live and using them as a reference. And that that, uh, Lockheed video is an example of what they were really seeing before they dumbed everything down, drained all the color out, desaturated it so basically you'd think you were seeing the same dead gray moon that had been described during Apollo and of course the Apollo films we never got to see anything live and the the live TV from Apollo was crap you know the basis of the state of the art at that time in fact the uh, the spacecraft now can show us astonishing live video which is such fidelity such amazing clarity because in fact it is taken by a camera which is something like 54,000 times the dynamic range of the Apollo film cameras whose dynamic range was only 10 to 1. Well I see we're at the bottom of the hour and I left time here specifically so that we can when we come back show you the real moon, and then have a most extraordinary conversation about what Orion fortuitously showed us live that night when they just weren't supposed to. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 26, 2022. We have a lot to get to tonight, so without uh, further preamble, let me uh, bring on all of my guests all at once. We will introduce them all by name. You can go and read their extensive biographies on the other side of midnight. Uh, But what you want to do now is to listen to me tell you that they are, in not any particular order, uh, Ron Ron is not with us tonight. He's listening by uh, on the internet, and he will uh, be emailing his uh, questions or comments if he has any, because he is uh, he is without phone. He's going to get it delivered tomorrow, brand new one. It's a Galaxy something, or uh, I don't know. It's got all the bells and whistles, and it's long overdue. But in fact, uh, he's not able to join us live tonight. So we're going to be kind of transmitting from the far side of the moon through something as old-fashioned as email. And then uh, Keith will put that up in the Skype window, and I will uh, read it um, if it's – well, no, I I will read it. I will definitely be a good boy, and I will read it. So we've got uh, Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara, as you know, used to work in the Reagan White House. She was heavily involved in policy. She also was involved in getting female astronauts into the NASA space program. She's currently part of – in fact, I think she's chairman of the 9-11 – um, committee to try to figure out what the heck happened back in 2001. Um, uh, we've got uh, George Lambert, our resident metaphysician. And again, all these bios are on the uh, uh, website. So you just go to the uh, uh, page for tonight's guests and you can just scroll down. Or you can click on their bios as fast links and it will take you to all of them. Now, Robert Morningstar was supposed to be with us, but he has suffered some kind of he calls it Julius Caesar's disease, which is his made-up name. He has been beset by some kind of pains in his spine and his shoulder, and he's been under treatment. And it, there was a respite for a while, but there's been a recurrence. So I think he's listening. And um, if, if he's inspired, he may call in, and then again, he may not. So uh, Robert is also a casualty. Uh, we've got Andrew Curry, who, of course, is our resident uh, illustration expert for the other side of midnight 
Andrew has worked in Hollywood. He's done commercials. He's done Super Bowls. He's done features. Um, again, all these people's bios are on the uh, uh, other side of Midnight website. And finally, David Sarita is with us. Now, the reason that I wanted David to come back, besides his extensive experience with um, uh, Giza and with uh, uh, thaumaturgical uh, texts and decoding of ciphers and numerical sequences and the recursive discovery of uh, things like sacred cubits in ancient sites and their measurements around the world, is that David was the first guy to send me a, a, a frame grab from what NASA had put out, and he realized as well that there was something wrong. So he simply increased the saturation a bit and brightened it a bit, and lo and behold, matched the video. And he, he made a very important point, which, of course, I know, but the audience may not. So let me underscore this crucially. When you brighten or increase contrast or uh, add saturation to a color image, you're not adding any data. All you're doing is with whatever computer program you're using is you're reaching into the data levels of the image and you're bringing out, making more visible for the human eye, the data that's already stored in the image. And if you try this with a black and white image, nothing happens. It stays black and white, black and white, black and white. You can max it out. You can blow out all the highlights. You can make the shadows brilliant white. You're not going to get color. The only way you can get color from an image is if it's inherently stored digitally in the image coding and all you're doing with some program, some algorithm, is asking it to come out forward, to brighten up, to become more visible, to basically increase the saturation as, a, as the, the colorist people talk about it relative to blacks and whites. So what David did was he sent me an image from Orion taken on the backside of the moon as it's curving around and a prominent large basin on the left-hand side of the moon is seen from Earth called Mari Oriental uh, was visible in the center of the disk. And he said, what do you think of this? And so, David, what did you see and why did you send it to me and what do you think now? Well, first I want to point out, because you really blew my mind when you said there was exactly a 47-minute blackout, <laughs> because that's 2,820 seconds divided by 360 degrees in a circle is 7.83, the Tesla-Schumann resonance. So there's something really going on here. This is, this is very precise. Of course it is, um, because they can't do a damn thing without a ritual, and even the bad guys are going according to the ritual. You know, they, they. I know. I mean, exactly 47 minutes is 2,820 seconds divided by 360 mm -hmm. degrees is 7.83. So we know that there's code there, and who designed this? I mean, is 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 a mystery that we'll 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 get to the bottom of. Well, no one, no, it, it's not a mystery. There are good guys and bad guys inside NASA. The bad guys right. are not. Somebody sending us the message. The question is, did. Did he tease? No, 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 no. They weren't sending us. They were sending this. As I model this, this was the bad guys telling the good guys, if you ever pull another stunt like this, giving the Earth live television during this mission, 
of what's on the moon, this mission is toast. The Artemis program is toast. You'll never see another sunrise. In other words, it was a threat couched in the ritualistic numbers that these people talk to each other in. Right. I know. I know. At the 19 point. So the colors, okay, you have RGB color systems, red, green, blue, and you have CMYK. So this is, you know, these images coming in. I mean, this is a $20 billion mission <laughs> spent so far. And you got GoPros out there, which I'm really upset about. I would have Hasselblad digitals out there when you're spending that kind of money. But nevertheless, um, you're right. There's, I mean, I was an expert black and white photographer, master printer. I won tons of awards. I was a, I was a um, professional photographer, and I know everything about film and and digital. So when, if there's color, there's a lot of possibilities of why we're seeing color in the imagery. First of all, when I see an image that's overexposed like where the moon is too bright, the first thing I did is dim it down a bit in Photoshop and I started to see color. Mm -hmm. I only increased the saturation by a tiny bit. Mm. And as you noted in the email to me, Richard, it's almost like a prism. Like, you know, when you look at your color spectrums um, coming across the moon from left to right, it, it it's, I mean, you've got your greens and you've got your cold colors. You've got these very soft, bright, um, um, it's like a luminosity over certain spots that where there's a crater. And this, this type of luminosity has a little bit of blue in it, which could mean um, a structure made of glass or something is causing that. I don't know. But then you have the warmer spectrum, right, that you were you were talking about. So again, there cannot be color that isn't there. I mean, it, the color is there. It's in the image. It's in the file. Yeah. And what they did is they tried to suppress it. Even the video that I saw compared to the Lockheed Loop, which is posted on our main page up near the NASA TV section. Look at that and then compare it to the video on the Flickr link, which is archive video and stills from NASA for out of the uh, uh, Johnson Space Center. They're deliberately doing everything they can to suppress the color because the moon is supposed to be gray. It's I know, and now they're giving us the close-ups on the flicker of the craters are very high contrast. Well, those are, those are the black and white, what they call the optical nav camera. And what they've right. done on those is they've deliberately overexposed them, oversaturated them, so the highlights blow out, right. and, and, and there's almost no shadowing. And in other words, they're giving us deliberately bad images. I know, no because, detail at all. Nothing. Because they don't want us to see what's really there. So let me, go, let me go systematically, because people who may not have been part of our conversation last week who joined us because of listening to me on Coast or on Kwai's show, let's quickly go through. Item number five in my radio pictures. This is the uh, link to the CIA secret Corona spy satellite program set up in the 1960s by President Eisenhower in answer to um, the Khrushchev's turndown of what was called the Open Skies Proposal, where we would fly U-2s over the Soviet Union, counting missiles and airfields and all that, and they would fly aircraft over the U.S. doing the same thing. We would both have the same database, and we would come to the negotiating table about 
arms reductions and all that, each knowing what the other side had. And the Soviets, the communists, the Premier Khrushchev said, yet. And so Eisenhower turned to the CIA and he says, well, uh, this was in the, in the time frame that Francis Gary Powers in the U-2 was shot down, which shot down, uh, um, you know, basically any, any chance of a, a summit, a, a whole presidential uh, Soviet summit was canceled over the shoot down of Francis Gary Powers in a U-2 high altitude, 70,000 foot uh, reconnaissance aircraft, the U-2. So Eisenhower turned to the CIA. The CIA said, well, we can create satellites. And with the Air Force, they did. It was called Project Corona, which is incredibly uh, double meaning and very Emily Dickinson. And so in five and six, you see the geometry. But what you don't see is why there's a third panel, because the Corona program was supposed to be a spy satellite program looking down at the Soviet Union at missile silos, industrial centers, troop movements, uh, rocket launches, aircraft, bombers, all that. And yet when I was leaked a set of images from Project Corona, long story, no time tonight to tell it, um, I found that every single frame on the, on the film I was, I was leaked was of the moon, which is what that third panel in item number six is, looking from Earth orbit across a quarter million miles of space at the moon and taking pictures on a special order film from Kodak. That's what number seven is. This is a sample of the special order infrared ultraviolet film. And what you want to do is you want to look, um, first of all, you want to look around the edge of the moon and you see that bright ring. And then in the bottom right, you'll see a, an enlargement with slight curvature. And then you see that bright ring enlarged, hugging the curving horizon called the lunar limb of the moon that should not be there that was the cia's first indication that in fact there were incredibly massive ancient structures made of glass covering wait for it the entire moon and when i tell people this they look at me like i've landed from mars because obviously with our technology we can't imagine doming in even a city let alone an entire planet 2,000 plus miles wide. Remember my friend Arthur C. Clarke's famous third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This is a technology that to us looks like magic. And for some reason, whoever owned the moon before it was ours, they decided to dome in the whole damn moon. It's like taking a soccer ball or a beach ball, and covering the entire surface in saran wrap. Not one layer, not two layers, but three or four layers. They're spaced miles apart, and you can see this in high-res images all the way back before Apollo uh, at the edge, at the lunar horizon. So why do we get that bright ring at the, at the horizon? Well, that's where item number eight comes in. Click on that. That shows you the geometry. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're on the Earth or you're in a spacecraft, but if you're looking at the moon with the sun behind you, like the full moon, doesn't matter what hemisphere it is, the glass is going to be most visible at the edges because of a phenomenon called backscatter. 
and I've got the perfect person to talk about backscatter tonight. Her name is Georgia Lambert, and besides being our resident metaphysician, Georgia is one hell of an artist, and she's going to talk to you about optical technologies that go back hundreds of years in the great masters recreating realistic scenery and what they did to create essentially lunar dome backscatter on earth in classical oil paintings. Georgia. Yes, hello. Good evening. <laughs> I I think I've got uh, an explanation for that beautiful, stunning image that uh, David sent. It, it's your item number 10, yep. Richard. Yep. If people will look at that. Uh, when I saw that, I understood exactly what was going on and why those particular colors, that sort of pinkish purple and that mm-hmm. bluish green. So give me a moment and let me lay this out. Hey, so, we got two and a half hours. Go for it. Okay. So before the Renaissance, paint was flat. If you lived in ancient Greece or Rome and you wanted to paint murals on your walls, you mixed up your pigment, uh, ground earth or stone or something like that. You mixed it with a little egg. You, you painted it into wet plaster. When the plaster dried, you had a fresco. But the color was flat. In the Middle Ages, they painted on wood. They painted on vellum. Again, grinding your pigment and mixing it with oil and a drying agent, turpentine, and they painted. And the color was flat. Well, the Renaissance comes along, and they start to think about light. And they, for instance, uh, da Vinci was the first one to really grok that when evening happened and the light started going away, colors changed. Trees started to go gray. There's a very famous uh, early painting of his called The Annunciation, where the angel is telling Mary she's going to give birth to Jesus, where the trees in the background are all gray because it's evening. This was revolutionary. And this led to an amazing technique called glazing. Now, the way this worked is you start with a bright white background. Uh, If it's wood, if it's canvas, it's painted, it's gessoed so that it's bright, bright white. The technique then is you mix up your color, again, depending on the color you're using, ground, wood, or stone, or whatever, or the more expensive colors, gold, or lapis lazuli, um, and you mixed it with oil, and you painted, and when it dried, you put a layer of varnish on it. Then you did another layer of very soft, transparent color. It dried. You put a varnish on it. Sometimes paintings would take 20 or 30 layers of this. So it was extremely time-consuming. But what the technology did was, as you looked at that painting, the, the light that you're looking with through your eyes is going through all those transparent layers. It's hitting the white background, and it's bouncing back up to you through all those layers which gives the color a jewel-like opalescent quality, a living quality that you can't get any other way. The only modern 
uh, artist to do this was Maxfield Parrish with his paintings, not his illustrations in magazines or, uh, or books or his posters, but his actual paintings. He would have like 30 paintings going all at the same time because every layer had to dry. The only other medium that does this is glass. <laughs> and so what we're what we're looking at is think of what gla- what sunlight does to glass on this planet. We've got sea glass or desert glass in India that's in shades of green. In the American Southwest, you put glass bottles out, they turn purple. Depending on the uh, qualities that make up the glass itself, sunlight going through glass is going to do this. Now, well, this it, is, it, it, it's technically it's the impurities in the glass, which are yeah. metals, metal exactly. ions, and depending upon the metal, whether it's aluminum or iron or boron or silica, in other words, each each metal will change the tint of the glass a different color when it's hit exactly. with ultraviolet radiation. Exactly. This is why that famous Venetian glass, that blood red glass, you get you have to put gold into the glass to get that color. Mm. That's what makes that color. But the thing about the moon is it's curved. So if you're looking at a at a painting that's glazed, you're looking through layers going down, bouncing off the white background and coming up, and it's all through the same layers. But if you've got a curved surface, then the ones that are coming back up to your eye are slightly off center to the ones that you're looking down with, which gives it not only a depth and a richness and a jewel-like quality, but an opalescent quality that can shift and change with your perspective. The moon is essentially a 2,000-mile diameter jewel in space covered with glass on the front side, the side that we see, it's almost eroded away. There's a reason for that. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But on the other side, the far side, it's in much better, almost pristine condition. And NASA is desperate for us not to realize this in the middle of a mission where billions of eyes are watching every frame, every video, every hiccup from the people running the Artemis One mission back to the moon. Exactly. And, I mean, only glass could could come up with that kind of color. The one image that I didn't have time because I had technical issues I was solving, um, there are some very famous glass structures on Earth, like the Victorian Palace that was built for the World's Fair back in the last century. There's another one in Spain, which I've got pictures of. And what you see is a, a huge Victorian glass structure uh, with an iron you know, framework with panel after panel after panel. And what you can see on some of the panels, if you zoom in, you see this gentle, opalescent, delicate, subtle shades of green and blues and mauves and pinks. And you get that by mixing the three primary colors in a rainbow, when you have refraction, like in a prism, when you mix them and you spray them out, you get these subtle secondary colors. But in this case, it's secondary colors on a planetary scale. 
It's mind-boggling. I know. And there's the hot spots, Richard. There's these really soft, shiny hot spots. I mean, I'm zoomed in on the image, you know, from the, you know, that shows the color spectrum. They're very bright and they're highly reflective. It's almost like if you took a picture of a glass sphere and you use lighting in the room, you would get these little hot spots from the light. Well, think about it this way. The moon has been sitting in space for millions of years. We're told four and a half billion. It wasn't a satellite of Earth for all that time. It was brought here much more recently. Another program, okay? Every time something hits it, it causes a crater, right? On the front side, most of the impacts are on the surface. On the far side, because the glass is so much more preserved, you're seeing the, the meteor strikes into the glass, and those rays are caused like firing a bullet hole through a windshield. You're seeing the splash pattern in the destruction of the glass by the cratering of impacting objects. It's like Bru- when, a, when a pebble hits the windshield yes. of your car. Yes. Except Is that what you're much- saying these bright spots are? These, yes, these they're, all, you, they're, they're three-dimensional. Again, I don't have, you know, I'm divided between doing a show and doing research, and sometimes the research suffers. So in future programs, I will lay out with specific NASA imagery, Chinese imagery, you know, Israeli imagery. You know, I didn't have time to put up separate nations that have all now photographed the far side of the moon in color. And they're all the same color, except they're nothing like Apollo because the film all came through one guy, Dick Underwood, at the laboratory in Houston. And under orders, I'm sure, Dick Underwood drained all the damn color that the astronauts saw on the backside of the moon. And they were ordered to basically describe it as dead gray right and there, there's another image i sent you that i found on the internet taken from earth that shows the same color we're looking at now by the way well Everybody, you have to so. do a lot of finagling with photography and exposures and phasing and, and lunar phase angles and all that to get equivalent color on the on the near side because the glass on the side we're seeing is almost gone but the glass on the far side is incredibly good condition that's why I've been looking forward to Artemis viewing what it's seeing. So let, let, let's move on here because we have lots of images and the story is in the images and we've got four minutes till the top of the hour. So if you look at the curved moon from the CIA image taken back in the 60s, number eight, and you look at the curved moon at the bottom of number 10 from David's image, notice the incredible similarity of the brilliant horizon up to and including the thickness covering that portion of the moon, which is simply on the left, rotated 90 degrees and placed at the bottom of the image. So now we come to number 11. So Artemis is approaching the moon in this long sweeping curve that brings it in from the far side. And you can see in 11, the Earth is back there a quarter million miles away. The spacecraft, which is Orion in the upper right, is moving down toward the left in orbit. And the moon, because of parallax and opposite geometry, is apparently moving to the upper right. Okay, So what's going to happen is the moon is going to sweep closer and closer and closer to the Earth, and eventually it's going to cover it. Now, one of the weird things is all of the NASA television and all of the images they posted, they're posting upside down. 
for some reason they don't want people to have a three-dimensional spatial orientation the way we look at the moon on earth the way the moon orbits the earth in other words they're doing everything along the way to make this as confusing and hard to follow as possible which of course completely contravenes their congressional charter someone someday should sue these people because they're breaking the law anyway we are at the top of the hour why don't we hold it there my guest this morning too numerous to mention you will catch it as we kind of move along here what we're doing is we're going tonight to talk about what there is in terms of the orion spacecraft artemis one mission which is showing us that we in fact are orbited tonight by a formerly inhabited moon and by beings who could build on a scale that literally could contain entire worlds. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 26th, 2022. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for because the beginning of the end of the beginning is now in sight. Even if they're lying to their teeth, which they are, even if there are incredible internal dissensions, which they are, even if there are good guys struggling to get the word out 
and bad guys cutting off the whole spacecraft for 47 blankety-blank minutes. I mean, come on. How much more desperately clear does it have to be before you realize there's a war going on between us understanding who we really are, what our real extraordinary history has been, and those for the last 50 years who have been trying with every means possible to keep us down on the farm. So let me uh, uh, resume here because I want to get through these images really quickly because then we get to the good part, which is everybody gets to talk about them and express their rather informed opinion. So number 11 is the Earth and Moon coming together because of celestial mechanics as Orion orbits it around behind it. Now, this is a still frame from the looped video from Lockheed Martin, which shows you the stunning color of the moon. Now, how do we judge color? Well, the normal way when you're doing television in the studio or even out in the field, before the, the, the technicians will take a shot, they'll stick a white card in front of your face, and they do what's called a white balance. They'll look at the red, green, and blue channels, and if they're properly balanced, the card will appear white on the screen, and that's how you color balance uh, widely varying shots with colorful things in the background. You have to have a white balance standard. Well, look at that, look at that spacecraft in number 12. There's a lot of that damn spacecraft which is white, like that collar halfway between the uh, adapter ring where the NASA logo is written sideways and the back of what's called the service module, which is to the right. That collar is a warm white because the sun is a G-type yellow star, okay? Now look at the far left. Look at that moon. Look at how incredibly colorful the moon is. And then here's the surprise. You see that cone-shaped object to the right of the crescent? That's the actual Orion spacecraft. That's the so-called Apollo look-alike capsule covered with aluminum foil. Uh, you can see that if you go and look at it at another angle in image number one. You see this is a, a photograph with the uh, sun coming from the front, and you can see it lit, and you can see the blues. That's basically aluminum foil uh, colors, okay? So it's aluminum foil because of uh, thermal properties and reflection of heat and all that. But it doesn't look anything like that in image number 12. Why not? Think of the geometry. The capsule, the spacecraft, is totally in shadow from sunlight. In fact, that big black kind of lumpy-looking square, that's the shadow on the adapter ring from one of the solar panels. Remember, the, this thing is flying like a windmill with four solar panels extending 25 feet out on each side, uh, and they can be bent backwards during burns and all that. But normally, they're in a right angle um, uh, kind of windmill configuration. So that's the shadow uh, of one of the solar panels with the sun coming from the right, all right, kind of behind you and a bit to the right. Okay. So look at again at the color of the command module, the color of Orion. Look at all that color. Why is it so bright and why is it so colorful? Okay, um, let's see, should I do this? David, do you know? Oh, wait. Okay. Hi. 
I, I'm just looking at the uh, the Flickr images. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Say... Well, would you mind please looking at my images tonight? Oh no, I did. I looked at all of them. Well, then answer about number twelve, okay? We can look at Flickr later. Sorry. Okay, so the look at number um, twelve. Why is the right. command module in total solar darkness in shadow? Why is it so bright, and why is it that color? Well, you can do a lot in Photoshop. No, 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 I mean, no. You... This is this is real. This is real. Just straightforward answer question. Okay? Well, when I look at twelve blown up, I have a big computer screen. It looks heavily pixelated. It yeah, looks, that's just uh... that's just noise compression. That's not affecting the color. Look at look at the same command module from the other angle in item number one, okay? Let me go back to item one. Okay. It, it, look, it looks like the color of the moon is reflecting on exactly. that Exactly, yes. Now, you can say, if you want to be a real, you know, nasty person, oh, Hoagland, you're making it all up because you're just adding color, you know, to the moon or, or you're enhancing what's not there. But what he, we have here, primary source, which is the moon, then reflection off the command module, which is the same color as the moon, in total shadow. In other words, you have check and counter check and balance and counterbalance in the logic that the moon on the far side is incredibly colorful. It's because it's made of glass. It's subtly refracting incredible rainbow hues, mixing the three primary colors together, getting these subtle greens and wabs and pinks and the kind of stuff you get when you mix prismatic colors and the aluminum foil covering of the command module is reflecting all of that to the camera on the tip of the solar panel that we're seeing partially shadowed there on the uh, adapter ring. And what's amazing about that is how far away the, 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 the Orion spacecraft is from the moon. Like if you take a picture of a person's face that has fair skin around greenery, then the greenery goes into the face. Well, you know, wait, wait, wait. They, they were within about 2,000 miles at this time in their, in their uh, approach, okay? Yeah, that's a long way. So no, it's not. It's one lunar diameter away. If you're one diameter just, away, the optical angle for the moon appearing in the, in the sky or in the camera is one radian, 57 degrees. Mm-hmm. So 90 degrees is, is, is you know, half of a, of, of a half a circle. So it's a huge angle. The point is, <clears throat> the moon is not dead gray, black carbon, like we've been told. It's this glittering, glistening glass sphere, like a Christmas tree ornament, glowing in sunlight, backscattering like crazy. And NASA and everybody else who's been to the moon has verbally been lying to all of us for half a century, lying, lying, lying. Why? That question well, you know, must be addressed. Very interesting, like like about what Georgia was saying too. Like when you look at things at nighttime with no sunlight, well, everything's gray. But when you add sunlight, then the colors emerge, right? Because everything is actually gray. It's different shades of gray, but we're reflecting. Everything we see that has a color is absorbing the opposite of the spectrum and emitting, like, if you look at something that's red, it's actually gray, but it's emitting red light in, in reflecting sunlight. So, so that's kind of, it's kind of a trick. I remember when I was a paper boy at 4 a.m., everything looked gray that I was looking at and because nobody had any lights on. And so, you know, 
gray is 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 really quite colorful. I mean, it, it it's like crystals, right? And if there is a if there well, wait, wait, wait. You can have gray that's like pumice. It's like cement dust, right? Which right. is just dead. It just absorbs light. Sure, of course. Or you can have gray that, in certain angles, it's all about sun angles, will look neutral, will look gray. But in fact, if it's got any internal depth, like glass and refraction and reflection. You know what's interesting is you know you know the museum in southern New Mexico where they have the the lunar rock. I took my kids there, and when I looked at that rock, it was full of color. It well, it was not a because a half rock. of the surface of the moon on the front side, in terms of the samples, is little bits of glass. Right. It looked like it's that. the domes yeah. that fell down that were smashed by meteors and became part of the regolith, the lunar dirt, and then compacted into little rocks called breccias, which are welded together, uh, clasped by the pressure and temperature of impacts, and it creates these synthetic <clears throat> compositions, and they reflect the original composition of the glass that was overhead that used to be part of a structured dome. Moving on, moving on, 13. This is very revealing. This is a Chinese image taken of the far side of the moon, uh, Chang 5, which was a couple years ago, a couple, three years ago. You can see the gibbous earth over there in the distance, quarter million miles away. You can see the gibbous moon, obviously much closer to the Chang spacecraft. And that big dark thing in the middle of the moon is called the Moscow Sea. It was first seen uh, by the Soviet Union when they sent their uh, lunar spacecraft around the far side of the moon in 1959. Notice again, you're looking at the far side. The left-hand side is color and it's pinkish tan. The right-hand side is much more neutral. It's almost gray, except there's this island of bright pink uh, kind of down at the four o'clock position, if you can think of the moon as a clock with midnight being up and down and six being down and three and nine to the left and right. And then around uh, uh, four o'clock, you can see that pink island. <clears throat> this again is because the color of the moon changes with your viewing angle and the solar illumination angle. And that's all due to the fact that it's glass. Yeah, notice that the Earth is color correct, so that means that there's no playing around of color. No, there. no, no. The the whites of the clouds in the Antarctic, which we're seeing at this angle, is brilliant white. The blues of the the Israeli scattering over the oceans. It's all the way it should be. Uh, I just again, I just tweaked it just a little bit so you could see what's there because the saturation. When they put this stuff out, they reduce the saturation to zero because they don't want anybody to know. But they put the real data out so that Again, it's not what they say, it's what they publish. And if they put too much contrast in, you lose a lot of your yep. your tonal range. You lose a huge amount of tonal range. Okay, so yeah. moving on to 14. We, the good stuff is down below, okay? 14 is two timestamps, maybe an hour apart. In the left-hand panel, it's the Orion moving down to the lower left, the moon moving up to the upper right, and the and it's about to cross the Earth, which is kind of stationary, quarter million miles away. Okay, the panel on the right is taken, and I chose this frame specifically for when the Moon just covers about half of the Earth. 
and you can see the angle between the spacecraft, between Orion and the surface of the moon is also much smaller because they change the orientation of the spacecraft and thereby the camera on the, on the solar panels also changes with it. Notice the incredible reflections from the moon in the side of the adapter of Orion. You see that? Oh, yeah. Very Look at how very... colorful it is. Oh, yeah. The moon on the far side is a glittering glass Christmas tree ornament that we were never, ever supposed to see. Okay, 15. Now, here's where we get back to uh, George's uh, uh, example, okay? If you click on 15, the image on the left is merely a, a, a pre-image. It's kind of like the one on the left-hand side of 14, which I just blew up and rotated it. So you can see that dark area kind of at the top. That's uh, a feature uh, called Mari Oriental. When you're looking at the full moon from Earth, it's just around the edge of the moon on the left-hand side. And because of the moon's libration, you can sometimes just see it. And good photographers, good uh, amateur astronomers have taken stunning images of Mari Oriental, kind of like a horizontal view because it's on the left-hand edge and vibration brings it around just slightly sometimes during the lunar month. The, the companion image on the right, all I've done is to dim it down, lower the overall brightness. Notice that incredibly bright ring around the horizon. And notice that it's not very thin, it's very broad and it's diffuse on the side facing the camera or the center of the moon, which is kind of down where the point is, okay? Why is it that way? Well, now we go to 16. Click on that. Same image. What I've added is a, um, a photograph taken of a street sign, one of which was painted with normal paint, you know, the kind of flat painting that Georgia described a few minutes ago. The street sign on the right is painted with a specific uh, uh, Minnesota mining scotch light paint, which has trillions of little glass spheres embedded in the paint, kind of like the layers of clear varnish she was talking about. And what the spheres do when the light enters, it bounces around inside the spheres and it comes back right outside uh, in the same angle it went in. It's called retro reflection, retro meaning backwards. So all those brilliant signs on interstates and sometimes in cities that glow when your headlights hit them, they're made of this retro reflective material. The glass structures on the moon are acting in terms of sunlight scattering exactly like retro reflection painted signs on Earth. They kick sunlight directly back. And since in these two versions of the moon, photographed by Orion the other morning, the sun was directly behind the camera and the spacecraft, you were getting retro reflection. But because the density of the glass is so much greater at the horizon, think of the reason why sunsets are so much more colorful than looking at the sun directly overhead. Because when it's overhead, you're looking directly to the thinnest layer of the atmosphere. But along the horizon, your path length or the optical uh, path length is something like a thousand miles. So when you look tangential 
to a sphere covered with glass, you're going to be looking through a lot of glass and a lot of backscatter at the limb and not much at the nadir or directly down. So now we go to 17. All right. This is now a very dramatically darkened, sunlit portion of the far side where I've really gotten rid of most of the effects of the glass except for the color. And you can see the dark areas underneath. And then you see that bright rim covering a portion of the earth. Now, the prediction would be that if we're looking at the moon with a glass set of layers tens of miles thick that intrude across the earth as the moon geometrically is moved by the motion of the spacecraft to the lower left, you should see a portion of the earth in free space and then you should see a portion of the earth through the glass, which in this geometry acts like a million separate lenses focusing sunlight bouncing off the earth a quarter million miles away through the glass layers, the domes on the moon, and then to the Orion camera. So now we look at number 18. What does everybody see in number 18? And well, you can see it bleeding and, and reflecting. Yeah, you're, you're, it's not it's not a clean horizon line. There's no, you're the seeing color. the Earth through the damn glass. That's it's what I mean. That's, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's fuzzy because it's, it's scattered. You know, it's it's not a direct path length. There's a lot of broken glass in between because of meteor bombardment. This isn't a pristine dome. It's ancient. It's battered and bashed, but it's much less battered and bashed than the front side. And it's exactly what you would imagine, exactly what the model predicts. Remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. The model of a moon covered with a glass layer is that at the right angles, you should see through the layers at whatever is occulted by the layers as they saw that night as the moon set and they got live video they were not supposed to see and record on Earth forevermore. And then they got interrupted for 47 minutes a few hours later as a slap on the wrist and a don't you ever do that again. Now we have to cover this. It's incredible what it means. It's confirmation of the whole damn model. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, really big. I mean, it's really, really. Look, look at the, look at the color. Look color at how, look, look at how he, as, as you as you move from the Earth down to the corner, which is kind of like the you keep going and you get to the center. Right, of the, right, right, right. You'll see that the, the the light area kind of tunnels in, so that there's a a kind of an inverse funnel. It's darker in a in in the middle than on both edges. That's the way scattering occurs in glass when you have a semi-coherent scattering and refraction. Uh, sure. To make it simpler, look at 19. This is a photograph that was taken by Apollo 16 just before the moon disappeared behind the right-hand edge as Apollo was orbiting the moon. As you can see from the phase angle of the Earth, where would the sunlight be, Dave? Well, well the... You're, you're looking at a half Earth. Where would the sun be in that picture? 
behind us. No. Look at the Somewhere. look at Georgia. Where would well, the, it, seems, it seems to me the sun would be uh, at at the twelfth position. Exactly, because you're looking at a half Earth, which means the sunlight's got to be coming down from the top to create a half Earth, like a half moon, like a first quarter right. moon. So yeah, so the landscape below the lunar landscape is brilliantly lit by high noon sunlight. Okay, you with me? Yep. But as the Earth is is about to descend behind the curved horizon. Look at all that incredible set of multicolored specks of brilliant, brilliant illumination. Zoom in, click on it, it gets much bigger. Look at all those individual incredible sparkles focused right below the earth and right around the earth. What are they? They are a million separate images of earth magnified aimed toward the Apollo film cameras because of the lensing qualities of the glass domes seen in light transmission, not in backscattering, but as the light from the earth is coming through the glass, that's the lens effect that you get, which is exactly what we're seeing in image number 18, except that was taken a couple days ago by a live camera on an Orion spacecraft curving around the moon, showing us things live that NASA desperately hoped we would never see or understand do you have the uh, do you have the original image of of this that you um that was in color obviously you mean 16 the the apollo yeah of um, course i do i will i will yeah. send it to you after the show and yeah. you can have fun because it's all there anyway bottom line we have good guys and bad guys in nasa the bad guys are doing the rituals in this weird, dark, arcane launching at the mathematical equivalent of 19.47, which, by the way, means all the sending the red team out and turning the, 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 the nuts and all, all fake, 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 so they could launch at 147, which translates, if you add the 12, to 19.47 in, in, in Houston. And then they get suddenly, because of some genius of the DSN, live television, and then they get cut off the air for 47 ritual minutes a few hours later as a warning, don't you dare do this or we'll kill the whole damn mission. And we've had no live television of anything interesting ever since. And I'm embedding dollars to Navy Beans as we whip around the moon on, uh, on Wednesday afternoon or Wednesday evening uh, during the, the burn to come back home. We're not going to see any live television. It'll all be archived, recorded and then altered, messed with, and we'll only get a sanitized version from now on. That's yeah, all the bad news. news. Now, you want to hear the good news? Yeah. The President of the United States in a few days is going to sign the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. In there are very elaborate amendments put in by two senators, Republican and a Democrat, which basically specify that once he signs this document and that bill becomes law, there are protections for anyone in NASA or any contractor of NASA that knows the truth and has access to the real data to make that data public, to bring it to the attention of their supervisors, of the Congress, 
of the press of the world and there can be zero legal retributions and we're days away from Biden signing this crucial liberating legislation. How could the how could anybody walk on the moon to penetrate the glass layer? That's what I want to know. Because it's so damn thin. I have likened it over the years to the consistency of cigarette smoke. All right, on the side that we can see, the the near side. Oh, I see. On the side we can see, it's very thin. It's incredibly thin, but because there's no air, there's no moonquakes, there's nothing to make stuff fall down. When pieces have been chipped away by meteors, the pieces right next door just sit there. So it's been getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and it's so incredibly tenuous, it makes spider webs look like, you know, massive trawlers and hawsers and iron Victorian framework by comparison. Right. I I read Richard Feynman's Strange Theory of Light and Matter, where he stacks the sheets of glass and he's counting photons. I mean, when I'm looking at your item 19, it kind of reminds me of that, that when you see, like you said, every one of those little spots is a reflection of the earth and in the crystallization of this layer that is that is each one of the crystals is reflecting an image of the earth well think of how big those chunks have to be to be visible from a very insensitive film camera in a spacecraft which is like a thousand miles away the radius of the moon all right looking horizontally across the the landscape, the curved landscape. That's why I wanted to see the original image because Hasselblad today makes the best digital camera on Earth. And they, they took Hasselblad to the moon, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, so why are they using GoPros on a $20 billion you know, spacecraft is, is a bit of a because joke. Because they man. didn't want the high-quality data to come to Earth. I know. I'm looking at the high, high contrast. But even the crude GoPro is showing us everything that we should be seeing that they don't want us to see. Oh, yeah. I have GoPros here. I I have so many cameras here. I mean, I've got German optic massive binoculars, and I can look at the moon and see a better image of the moon than we're getting from from the Orion spacecraft. But the the amazing thing to me is, is the public doesn't seem to notice this incredibly high contrast and very low file size resolution. Maybe when they get back and they download from the camera directly, they might share with us. No, they won't. No, they they don't dare. They probably won't. The only way we're going to see it is when Biden signs the law that makes it possible for people inside to basically, uh, Steve Bassett hates it when I say this, blow the whistle take the real images to the damn New York Times and like Leslie Keene back in, in 2017, publish the real images from Artemis and Orion. I know, and people have to complain. Like, if nobody complains, it's just, oh, But nobody just... knows enough to complain. That's our problem. Okay, look, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website and take a look. David Sarita and Georgia Lambert and Barbara Honiger uh, who's being very quiet, but we'll, we'll, we'll fix that. We don't have Robert Morningstar with us. I wish Robert would call in. Um, his back should not be affecting his mouth. And Ron, of course, is uh, listening and may send us some email and thoughts and whatever until he gets his phone, which, of course, is not tonight. It's tomorrow. 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back everyone to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night about a half hour to go before we enter the uh, the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment my guests this morning are uh, Georgia Lambert and David Sarita and Keith Morgan of course is with us Ron's phone has not arrived so he's listening and may email in Robert Morningstar is under the weather and um, it's somehow affecting his mouth so he which I find very bizarre Come on. Have you ever heard Robert without an opinion? But tonight he's definitely feeling that he needs to kind of, uh, you know, get better. And we, we totally concur. Unless the spirit moves him and he has to say something, he knows where to find us on the other side of midnight. And Barbara Honiger is with us. Barbara, you've been very patient and very quiet and taking this all in. What are your thoughts? Yeah, can you hear me, Richard? Bye-bye. <laughs> well, I guess the first thing um, I'd like to say uh, is people go to my items. Um, and you do that by going to the top and clicking on the fast links to Barbara's items. Um, you will see that um, when I was at the White House and Justice Department in the first Reagan administration, um, that's my item number one, 
Um, one of my jobs, I was the director of the attorney generals at the Department of Justice of the Attorney General's Gender Equity Law Review. <laughs> and one of my jobs was to go to all of the, as many as possible, as many as who would cooperate of the 46 federal departments and agencies in the federal government back then in 1981-82. And uh, included in those, of course, was NASA. And I held the, um, informally held the NASA portfolio when I was in the White House in the first year and a half of the Reagan first Reagan term because my mentor and boss, Dr. Martin Anderson, who was the chief domestic policy advisor to Reagan, didn't want to have anything to do with NASA, but he needed to appear to do his job, so he sent me to all of those meetings. And um, so the bottom line is that in my interaction uh, with NASA for both the White House and the Justice Department of Reagan, uh, one of my jobs was to uh, do everything possible working with up to the deputy director level uh, to open any um, programs, any offices, etc., any activities that were close to either men or women um, to both genders equally. And so our job was to uh, continue what the Carter administration had begun, which was to open the U.S. Astronaut Corps to women. And we've been focusing on the moon, which is completely appropriate up to this point in the program. But I'm going to focus here on the mission a little bit more. Uh, and the mission of Artemis, of course, um, the way it is uh, billed, is um, I believe it's in Artemis IV in late 24, early 25. Um, the the mission goal is to uh, send the first female. No, no, no. That, that that's Artemis three. Oh, is that going to be Artemis three? Mm -hmm. okay. Artemis three. Uh, the goal is to, to send the first female astronaut who will be a U.S. astronaut to the moon. And um, I had a I had a big hand in that personally. So um, just like you, Richard, uh, we both have something to do with the start of this mission. So I'm very proud of that. Um, my second item, saving Apollo 11, I realize this is a little bit difficult to read for some reason when it was posted. It's a little bit fuzzy. Um, but if anyone uh, would like to uh, get a clearer copy of that if you can't read it or if you print it out when you click on uh, those three pages of the article. That was one of my articles that was published in a Defense Department newsletter for 16 years. I was a senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School here in Monterey, California, where I live, in the Monterey Peninsula of California on the Central Coast. And... Um, the Navy Postgraduate School, otherwise known as NPS for acronym, um, is still billed by the Defense Department itself as DOD's premier um, science, technology, and national security affairs graduate uni university, graduate research university of the Department of Defense. So I was the senior military first journalist. And in all my 16 years, this is the most important article I ever published um, in Literally on the the first day of the 31st year, after 30 years had gone by from Apollo 11, into my office walked 
the man that is the hero of this article. And he was the Navy's weatherman in Pearl Harbor. He had just taken the position. Navy Captain Sam Houston uh, related directly a uh, descendant of the Sam Houston. Oh, my. And um, he, he came into the office with a booming voice and said, I need a writer. <laughs> well, I was the writer. <laughs> so he was ushered into my office by the public affairs officer, closed the door, and he explained to me that he was finally able to tell the whole story of Apollo 11. And the bottom line of this article is, if the corona, the secret corona satellite that Richard talked about earlier in his item today, where the corona satellite cameras were turned up at the moon and images from that unusual uh, target were given to Richard Hoagland some years ago. That same then secret, top secret Corona satellite cameras uh, were were used to look at the um, what was the pre pre-established, pre-scheduled splashdown location in the Atlantic, off of Honolulu, off of Hawaii, and it turns out that thanks to the Corona satellite camera. Um, Sam Houston and his Air Force counterpart at Hickman Air Force Base um, near Pearl, in Pearl Harbor, um, Hank Brandley of the Air Force, they together determined from those corona satellite images, top secret images at that time still, that there was a an immense screaming eagle vertical hurricane formation forming over the precise landing zone for the uh, flashdown of Apollo 11 that would have ripped all, all of the parachutes to shreds and they would have died upon impact with the ocean. So they were able to change the splashdown location in the last few hours and redirect the USS Hornet aircraft carrier. And uh, so we had a successful mission. So that's an incredible um, coincidence that the Corona Satellite Program, which also, by the way, the cameras of the Corona Satellite Program, then, of course, very top secret. It had just come online shortly before the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were also critical in uh, the original images of what the Soviet Union was doing in Cuba that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then they followed that up with U-2 overflights and, and uh, fighter jet overflights, much lower, that gave, that gave clearer images than the corona satellite images. But the corona satellite images were the first that got to uh, JFK, so that he knew about it even before the U-2 flyovers of Cuba. Um, I do have a few comments um, about your items, um, Richard. And my first question is... Uh, let me go to that item. Number three, that's your Apollo news release that you wrote, the PDF. And my question to you is, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, but I would like to know if there is any mention in that, probably not, um, of the glass, uh, uh, the glass regolith. Oh, no, no. At that time, I no. was, you know, dumber than dirt. I followed the NASA party line. I mean, how the hell do you think I landed that <clears throat> writing position by knowing anything like I know now. No, it was, right. it, it, it was so weird because the vice president, uh, uh, Drummond Aerospace, came in to the CBS bureau there in uh, New York one day, the headquarters on 57th Street, 
And he said, uh, where's, where's this guy Hoagland? And I was in a, I don't know whether I was in a meeting with Arthur Clark or with, uh, uh, you know, the producer or whatever. And I, I said, I'm, I'm him. And he said, uh, can we go and have a conversation? So we did. And he said, I'd like you to write the section on the moon for the official Grumman lunar module press book that's going all around the world to every press person on the planet covering our role in the Apollo program. I want you to write the section on the moon. Mm-hmm. And I said, Archie. yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, what else do you say? <laughs> yes, what's, what's, what's so weird is that it was, I, I, I wanted to make it prophetic. So it was far beyond just Apollo. And it kind of holds mm-hmm. up. I talk about uh, Neil Rusick's book, Where the Winds Sleep, about all these industrial things that we could do on the moon that we can't do on earth and all the benefits to humankind from, you know, creating a cis lunar industrial space revolution. Of course, Mm -hmm. if I'd known then what I know now about ruins and libraries and incredible sophisticated ancient, you know, technologies by beings that are light years ahead of us, it would have been a very different piece. And obviously NASA would not have published it. So no, there's none of what I know now in there. It's all pre-enlightenment. Right. I un- I understand. Well, it occurred to me that maybe you knew already then or suspected about the glass regolith, but you might have put it in there, Emily Dickens' slant. Nope, not even nope, nope, nope. Dumber yeah. than dirt. Lunar Dumber dirt. dirt. Okay, and then I have a question for, well, I have a comment first and then a question. Well, for hang David. on, hang on a sec. There's no reason anybody should have known. Because because the unmanned spacecraft had performed so brilliantly. Looking back, of course, some of the color imagery taken from the surface of the moon by, like, Surveyor 1. If I'd been really on my, on my game, which was impossible because there was no reference, when you look back at that unmanned spacecraft data, the domes, the effects of the domes, the color, the prisms, Uh, We had an eclipse of the sun photographed from the moon by surveyor. When you look at those images now, you can see the damn domes and the colors and everything from the surface of the moon. And there was no way that we could have known then because what did NASA do? They drained all the color out of the color images before they posted them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Um, so I have a comment that there's something very, very strange happening with the mainstream media, in my opinion. Um, as you, as I believe I've mentioned on this show a number of times before, um, I, I read, I, I just consume uh, the mainstream uh, newspapers every day, both online and in the case of the New York Times. I can get that, uh, you know, in the morning. I don't know how they get it out here so fast, but they do. And um, the day... After on Tuesday, I think the uh, Artemis one went up on Monday, correct? Well, the, the the flyby was on Monday morning, a few hours after we got off the air. Right. The, the, right. Exactly. The, the the launch was the previous week on the 16th, pre-dawn hours of the 16th. Right. Yeah. Wednesday. No, no, I mean, it would have been the Wednesday. Flyby. The flyby was Monday morning, and then Monday morning. a few hours right. later, Monday they morning. lost contact for 47 minutes. Right. Right, okay. So what was very, very strange to me 
is that I was very excited to go get my New York Times. I go down the hill here in Carmel Valley Village where I live in the Monterey Peninsula to get my daily New York Times and get my coffee with it. And, and I expected to see an article about that on the front page, Richard. There was nothing. I went nothing? Nothing. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nothing. Finally, a little article on the bottom of page 11. Well, I can explain that both in the mundane, stupid model as versus the insider, crafty, conspiratorial model. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares anymore about space unless there are people attached. I was going to say, once, once uh, the actual astronauts go up, it'll be a... Oh, it'll be, be front page nonstop, 24-7 all over the world. Yeah. And then you have to pray, but maybe not because the bill will have passed by then that these astronauts will be able to look out the window and say, oh, my God, look at all that glass, because in the current political regime, they cannot do that because they'll be court-martialed. Yeah, I understand. Okay, I've got uh, one more comment and then a question for David, I believe it will be, for both you and David or anybody. Um, My comment is, um, I hope it's all right for me to do this, Richard, but I'd like everyone listening all around the world to know that today David Ray Griffin, Professor David Ray Griffin, who is the dean of the 9-11 Truth Movement worldwide, he was very, very, very close to me, beloved person, as well as a great scholar. Um, Time Magazine listed him a number of times as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He passed away today. Oh, that's a shame. And I'm asking everyone to pray for his soul because we need him. <laughs> we need him really well he may be more influential where he is now than he was here <laughs> that's why i'm asking <clears throat> and i and i base that on a long four-year database yes i know with robin i do know that yes so i just wanted everybody to know that in your own way if you could pray for david ray griffin to be in the best possible position to help us on earth for all of our truth to come forward not just in this subject but in 9-11 in the JFK assassination I just came back from the JFK assassination conference in Dallas we talked about that uh, last Saturday and Sunday so I just wanted everybody to know um, about Professor David Ray Griffin the beloved soul okay and my question for David and you and anybody who, who wants to know David I believe I heard you say if I heard correctly that you have all of this wonderful um, camera and observational equipment including probably the best uh, German the best uh, in the world camera which is made in Germany not camera but um, binoculars I believe you said um, or maybe even a telescope and my question is you know I've looked at the moon through a telescope what is it about looking at the moon through the Earth's atmosphere that removes the color from it it does look drab and gray well I I have to you have to understand refractive index right and one of the things I wanted to ask Richard is on a Mohs hardness scale you know what because for example bulletproof glass I think is aluminum um, is aluminum um, transparent aluminum I, I believe that's what it is and you can fire bullets at and a sapphire is an aluminum oxide crystal and it's got a Mohs hardness of nine so it it's just underneath diamond so you can imagine how powerful bulletproof glass is. And, and of course, with the refractive index, which is why you see rainbows, when we look at the color on the moon, 
it does remind me of refractive index because your colors are gradient as you move along the surface of the moon rather than spotty, right? Like if I looked at a patch of flowers and some green grass, I would say everything is, you know, it, it's not like refractive index behavior. Like So the, the idea, what Richard is saying is, that on the side facing us, this this layer is very thin. And looking at initially, we think the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, but apparently it has a very thin <clears throat> trace. Yeah, but not really. It's like trillions. It's yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be dense enough to do no, anything no. like we're, we're talking about. You wouldn't see by factors of trillions. It. No. Yeah, no, it's not like our atmosphere. When you look at it through a steep angle, you you can you, you can you count the atoms, which is what the instrumentation that we left on the moon. Right, but my question the, is, the, why does the moon look drab and gray? The primary our... reason. Oh no, is... it doesn't. It doesn't with 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 good German optics. I mean, yeah. I've got these binoculars that are so massive; they're heavy to pick up. But <laughs> remember, you've got to you're looking at very bright white light. And of course, white light contains all the colors. And as I said before, everything is actually gray until you add your sunlight or some form of light to reflect off its surface. And we see what it's really, you know, what it's absorbing and what it's emitting, right? So. Well, David, that's not quite accurate. Let me, let me try uh, cut at this. Okay. Mm -hmm. The moon has two basic hemispheres, the earth side or the near side, which is the side we always see because the moon orbits the earth in the same amount of time, give or take the, the libration periods uh, that it takes to go around the earth. And it, keeps the, it rotates in the same period as it orbits. So you only see one side, but it vibrates on an axis because the orbit is not circular. It's an ellipse. And because of Kepler's laws, in ellipses, an object travels faster when it's closer and slower when it's farther away. So the little bitty difference between a perfect circle and the and the moon's orbit is enough to make it speed up a little bit as it moves closer to the Earth so that we see more of the other side because the rotation stays the same. The rotation is like a clock. Whereas when it moves toward the farthest point by a few thousand miles, it slows down a little bit, so the rotation is delocked in the other direction, so you see a little bit over the horizon in the other hemisphere. So we really see during a, a normal month about 60% of the moon, because we can peek over the left side and the right side because of what's called libration, but we can never see the back 40%. So the side that we're seeing is basically the glass has been scoured to basically almost non-existence. It's but why all, not on the far side? Because oh. it was, that's the side that was protected back during the exposure to the extraordinary destruction of Planet 4, going back to Tom Van Flanderen's model, and because the moon's orientation shifted by 90 degrees, in the last 66 million years, what we see as the near side, the earth side, used mm -hmm. to be the front. And so like a cannonball mounted on your Bentley driving across the Sahara during a sandstorm, the front of it would get eroded ferociously 
the back was protected by the mass of the moon. And then it rotated 90 degrees due to tidal effects. And so now what used to be the side protected is now the far side. And the side that was exposed on the front is now the earth side. And so there is an incredible differential in the density of the surviving glass between the side facing earth and the side away from earth on the far side, which is why... Which is why the Chi- the Indians crashed because they didn't follow what the what the Chinese did, which is to land vertically. The Indians tried to come in with their spacecraft, kind of like Apollo, horizontally, where the glass was denser, and they crashed. Uh-huh. So, so um, let me ask. Ask David the question a little bit differently then. With these incredible German uh, binoculars that are hard to pick up, uh, if the moon uh, doesn't look gray and drab, what does it look like? Well, when I when I look at the light, of course, the light is coming through the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Again, it it it, ha- it has to do with the angle of light. What. The, this glass is made out of um wait, wait, wait. Much- david david it's so much simpler <clears throat> it has to do with it, it has, has, barbara barbara it has to do with brightness yeah below exactly, a certain Richard, below exactly a certain brightness below a certain to- below a certain brightness the cones and rods in the eye do not see color uh-huh. so you have to have a, a threshold of brightness the moon is just below, even a full moon looks so brilliant. <clears throat> Look at a landscape under full moonlight. Mm-hmm. Even if it's brilliantly colored, you're in a, you know, a garden with roses and all that. They look basically shades of gray. Right, I understand that. David, do you see any color in the moon through the binoculars? Yeah, it's very, very sparkly, pristine hues of color. It's yes, subtle. It's do. subtle, subtle, it's subtle. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. Because the reason is the binoculars, the lenses are so much bigger, Barbara, than the eye. They collect mm-hmm. a lot more light. They raise it above the threshold for the rods and cones. So, yes, when you look at the moon in a big telescope or a big pair of binoculars, you now will see the subtle, subtle colors of the remaining glass, but they're like ghosts, like whispers compared mm-hmm. to what we're seeing on the far side. I mean, the and difference also, between some also, cheap I, you know, also, Walmart I, binoculars and these German ones I have is night and day. I mean, I may as well throw out my, my Celestron ones are garbage. I mean, I, I pick up these German ones and I'm going, oh my God, now I'm really seeing the pristine... Quality. Yes, it's, if you it's, dim it's, just the, it's just the size of the optics. Yes, Barbara, you, you were going to ask. And how good the and we and we we have we have one minute. Okay. Okay. Let me let me just clarify one more question to David. So, do you see effectively similar jewel colors, um, pastel jewel colors, as we see in these photos from Orion, but with less vividness? Do you yeah. See- I- I could say there's a certain amplitude of that. Yes, in in a sil- it looks more like silver to me, with hues, very fine hints of, of color. But you're mm-hmm. you, you don't when you print that in a magazine. If I was to take a picture with these optics and then print it, you 
you might not see it. But the fact that the, the colors exist in the digital image means that they're not false. They're actually real, right? So I don't I, – I've seen better images taken from Earth with the same color that we're looking at from Artemis Orion. Definitely seen images – I've sent one to Richard that almost looks the same, but it was taken from Earth. It's just – You've got to dim the light down because it's too bright. And when you dim it down and you add a tiny bit more saturation, again, I'm not cranking the saturation in Photoshop. I'm only adding about 10%. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden the color is there. And that's what impressed me. Now, if I moved the, the saturation all the way up in Photoshop, now that wouldn't be very impressive. But I'm barely moving it, just a little bit. In well, the way I described the moon to Georgia, who hadn't seen the photo yet, I said, think of a giant opal, an iridescent opal, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is the color it is because of the scattering in the layers of the gem, the interference mm -hmm. patterns, the Newton's rings, the interference of light frequencies against each other. That's all going on in these images of the far side of the moon. So we are at the uh, bottom, no longer at the top of the hour, the witching hour here in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning are, are Barbara Honiger and Georgia Lambert and David Sarita and waiting very patiently in the wings is another artist, only he works in a very different medium, Andrew Curry. And when we come back, we will have Andrew weigh in. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. On this now uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, a, a word of housekeeping. Um, I had two sets of guests lined up for um, tomorrow night, and both of them kind of uh, 
copped out on me uh, for very good reasons. I won't go into the details, but we're going to reschedule uh, them for next weekend, Saturday and Sunday. So you'll be uh, tuning into the website to see what that is. Uh, it's going to be a little surprise, particularly uh, Sunday night. It's going to be amazing. And Saturday night is very appropriate, and we need to deal with this, and I've got the perfect guests to do so. So those will be announced in the banners and the blurbs and uh, the promos that we write over the coming uh, couple, three days. So you're going to want to tune in Saturday and Sunday night. I'll give you a hint. I've talked about hyperdimensional physics for decades on this show. Seems like it. It's actually been uh, not quite uh, six, seven years, something like that. On Sunday night, we're going to be delving into the origins of hyperdimensional physics and the official embrace for a while, decades ago, by nothing less than the government of the United States of America. And then something happened. And we'll go into all of that with someone who well knows the firsthand story next Sunday night. Another part of what they're keeping from us, because it will change for the better, everything. So, Mr. Curry, you have been waiting very, very patiently there in the wings. What are your thoughts on all of this? Hi, Richard. Before I go, I know Barbara was trying to sneak something in there. Just maybe let her get her. <laughs> Barbara? Uh, yeah, th- thank you, Andrew. I appreciate that. Um, I didn't think I could be heard, but I guess you heard me. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, you know, you know you have a distinctive voice. <clears throat> the shadow knows. <laughs> yes, my six-year-old voice, yes. Um, yeah, I'd like people to know that in my item uh, number two, which is how a top-secret corona satellite and fast-thinking Navy and Air Force weathermen saved the Apollo 11 astronauts from certain disaster on splashdown. I mentioned that earlier in the show. That was the most important article that I wrote in my 16 years as the senior journalist for the Naval Postgraduate School, which is DOD's uh, main university in this country, and uh, right here in the Monterey Peninsula. But I wanted to add to this. It's not in the article because it happened after I published the article, which was 30 years and a couple of weeks after uh, the Apollo 11 splashdown, uh, when uh, the hero of the story, uh, Navy Captain Sam Houston, who'd been the weatherman at Pearl Harbor, um, came into the office and said, I can finally tell the truth. I need somebody to write it up. And, and I was in the right place at the right time with the right skills and background to have that incredible opportunity. And that's this article called Saving Apollo 11. What I want to add to it that isn't in the article is that after I published the article, I learned that there was a professor, I believe his name is James Hansen. Now, this is not the same James, if I have his name in my memory correctly, this is not the same James Hansen who was, um, you know, a, a major, um, well, he might have been actually. Anyway, there was a James Hansen who specializes in Earth imagery. Yeah, well, this is, the, this is the environmental guy who worked for Robert uh, uh, Jaster at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. Okay, well, if it's the same James Hansen, he was a professor at American University, as I recall, in the D.C. area, 
And he wrote the only authorized biography of Neil Armstrong. It's called First Man. Is If that's the same James Hammond. I don't think it's the same one, no. I no. don't think it's no. the same. No, he's a professor of American history. Right. So, so in any case, James, Professor James Hansen, somehow I learned about him, and I sent him this article. And he contacted me. I got a phone call at my desk not too long after it arrived on his desk back in, on the East Coast, D.C. area. And he said, oh, my God, I, I, I'm coming out to the Naval Post Graduate School. I have to talk to you. I have to talk to Sam Houston. And I said, great. Well, he came out, and unfortunately um, – I don't believe he was able to meet with Sam Houston. I tried. Something happened. He was ill or whatever. But luckily, I had gone back to Sam Houston and gotten the proof that he did this. Um, he had the highest level Navy commendation medal and certificate that I was able to copy. And I gave it, um, you know, the, the, the secretary of the Navy uh, and the, um, the head of the Navy were – um, were thanking him for saving the Apollo 11 astronauts. And so I gave that to James Hansen. And he was able to interview Sam Houston over the phone. And then in his manuscript for First Man, only authorized biography of, and you can buy it on Amazon today, of Neil Armstrong, um, he included, he was almost done with a manuscript when he raced out to the, to the Navy school to, to talk to me and Sam Houston. And it is in his book. He got it in his book. And he also then called up Neil Armstrong and asked him about it. Because in all of his many hours of interviews with Neil Armstrong, for the only authorized biography of Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong had never mentioned it. But he did confirm it. And it is in the book, First Man, that Neil Armstrong recalled having been um, – required, ordered, if you will, um, by the head of NASA that came from the head of the Navy to the head of, from Sam Houston to the head of the Navy to the head of NASA. And um, he was required to take, to, to take um, uh, personal control of the reentry into the atmosphere so that, you know, depending upon the angle you come into the atmosphere and the speed and where you enter it, that's where you're flashdown location is going to be and they had to change it by at least 200 miles and they did and they were able to survive because they were then able to avoid the vertical 250 mile screaming eagle hurricane that would have ripped their uh, parachutes to shreds and killed them on impact so it is in the book first man fascinating absolutely fascinating yep so that's it back Let's go to okay, yeah. Andrew, back to the moon. So, Barbara, what you're saying is like what Richard said off the top of the show where he says he had a small part in the Apollo uh, program, and you as well. It takes a village to raise a spaceship to the moon. <laughs> and bring it safely home. Exactly. So quite a delivery. Um, so I'm going to compliment – before I have a little preamble here, I'm going to compliment Keith for putting up with our zaniness, especially mine. I did send him a couple of items that I'm hoping he can get up because I believe these are salient points to what you're, you know, to the data you've brought, Richard. Um, so Keith, if you get this message, um, you have a couple of emails. But before that, Richard, I, you and Georgia were talking about um, glazing, and one of the the most beautiful artists that I believe that had such beautiful glazing technique and um, 
uh, Georgia, you back me up on this, was Vermeer. I mean, his paintings oh, yeah. were yeah, they were like gems. It's extraordinary. And anybody ever, and even if you look at just beautiful photographs of his paintings, you can see literally the layers in this. Uh, Georgia, can you elaborate a bit more about about his paintings? Well, Vermeer just painted light like nobody else. Yeah. Um, Rubens did it with uh, his flesh colors. Yeah. There was a translucency about that that nobody else could achieve. And, you know, it's a shame that technique is not used more because it's, it produces such beautiful jewel-like paintings that you just can't get any other way. Yeah, well, one of the problems now is that everything is digital. So the depth of, you know, computer screens and however much your megapixels are or whatever, it will give you that so-called depth. But Richard, before I hopefully... Uh, Keith gets it up, but I wanted to read something. Um, this is from a website called, uh, well, it's called the Corning Museum of Glass. And I think you guys mentioned this. Oh, I'm familiar question. with that. Yeah. 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 And, and so right off the bat, the question is, what causes the varied purple hues in old glass bottles? And there's a beautiful little picture. I actually posted it in our chat box. And it's of these two, well, they're called streetlight globes. And I'll read it and hopefully we can get these images up. But it says streetlight globes that have solarized to a purple color. Note that the screw thread, so where it, where the glass globe screwed into the um, aperture, you know, or not the aperture, but the um, uh, the light fixture, have not turned purple because they they were shielded from sunlight by the metal fixture. So I just want to read this. Yeah, uh, Keith has got this posted, yes. Oh, he does. Okay. So an interesting characteristic of colorless glasses which contain magnesium dioxide as a decolorizer is their tendency to turn different shades of purple when exposed to the rays of the sun or to other ultraviolet sources. It is a photochemical phenomenon that is not yet perfectly understood. This article is from 2021, November. Mm. It is generally accepted that the ultraviolet light initiates an electron exchange between the magnesium and iron ions. This changes the magnesium compound into a form that causes the glass to turn purple. I think you covered this already, but I just found that was um, very interesting. And there's another part. It was in the mid-19th century that magnesium oxide, popularly called glassmaker's soap, began to be used by American glass manufacturers as a decolorizer. And then on and on it goes. Um, well, when we're dealing with the moon and the, and the glass layering and the domes, this huge thing, again, of the moon covered with saran wrap, okay, um, you've got two sources of color. One is the intrinsic solarization, it's a good term, where the radiation of the sun, the shortwave ultraviolet, and high energy, very shortwave ultraviolet, literally interacts with the metallic ions in the glass, and it, it changes the color. So you've got baked-in color. The other, much more predominant color is coming from the refraction, the prismatic effects, and the solarization will stay the same no matter what angle you're looking at the domes, right. but the solar effects of refraction, the prism effects and the mixing of colors from the different prismatic geometries, that will change with viewing angle. And you can see that, and I'm hoping I can get Jonathan Womack to take the video. We do a time-lapse. So as Orion sweeps around the moon and we see the changing phase of the far side, We'll see it get bigger as we get closer, but we'll see this incredible change of color and the sweep of color across the lunar surface 
as we change angle and the colors prismatically, geometrically change with the orbit? Well, it's as um, David was saying, and as you were saying, Richard, it's very subtle. But again, if, if people look at the NASA data, from this Orion mission, or from the Artemis mission, but the Orion spacecraft and these, these photographs, you can see these colors. I had one more image that Keith hasn't put up yet, and hopefully he can, and that is an interior shot of the capsule, Richard. I was just, when you guys were talking about this sort of purpley hue, there are shots inside the capsule that reflect the same color as the moon, this sort of uh, purpley pink well, pink is not the right way. It's purple. Yeah, because it's coming through the windows. Exactly. And, and hopefully <laughs> we can get that image up. But if we go to my number one, so my items are there, Andrew's items. It's after Barbara. If we go to my number one, this is something that, okay, this relates to Richard's number eight. 17. Uh, oh, eight. Yeah, yeah. oh, maybe it's eight. Oh, no. Nope. Number seven, 17 and 18. Richard and I were kind of going back and forth on this, this earth rise. And the effect of... Like, it's, an, it's an earth set. Earth, okay, sorry. <laughs> earth set. Optically, um, they're the same, but, you know. No, 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 you, you correct me. And he's right. Richard's right. There is this, this um, there's depth. The, the earth is actually being seen, even in the NASA imagery. It's very subtle, but you can see it. Now, what I did is I took that same image, zoomed in on it. So if you look at my number one um, and just enlarge it, and... Richard, there was something that was bugging me all week when we, were, you know, after we had sort of had our little back and forth, and I was looking at the sort of surface of, of, of the moon in this image, and what struck me is that I think I see transverse lines. I mean, I did a little sketch here. Maybe I'm, I, I know. No, I'm no, you are. But see, there's another problem we have. If you look at some of my images of the, of the Orion and the moon, you can see the rivets on Orion. By the way, why does a 21st century NASA spacecraft have rivets like the Titanic? Come on, guys. I watched the launch of uh, SpaceX uh, Dragon this afternoon, and the Dragon capsule in the cargo form and the human form is the same. They just take out the seats and put cargo inside. Look at that incredibly smooth Google the Dragon spacecraft and just look at the image and then look at Orion in close up. What the hell is NASA doing launching a rivet stitched together spacecraft to the moon in the 21st century? So the rivets are, are tack sharp or just go look at one of my images. The moon is all soft and fuzzy with weird patterning that appears to be some kind of bizarre compression JPEGing. It's like, and the reason you can tell it, look at my far distant shot, which is my first shot of, from the Orion. Look at how you can see all the features on that version far away. But as you get really closer, like within a thousand miles, the images go totally, totally fuzzy yeah. because they're, pardon the pun, dicking around with us. Well, it, it, there's funny details, nevertheless, to me, and I, I, I mean, it, no, I see, yeah. I, I see in your lower panel the striations that appear yeah. to be like convergent lines of perspective. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, is that just an is that a, just an artifact of the imagery or what they're messing around with? No, I, I think it's it's exactly what we would see if you're looking at glass curving around a curved surface that's built exactly. in sections. And you know, I mean, the only way we're ever going to see the real stuff is when Biden signs that NDAA, and they're all covered legally. They're poor, delicate little posteriors, and they can basically go and make a million dollars from the New York Times or Time Magazine by telling the truth. Yeah. Well, I think these are little things that are bleeding through that they may have not wanted us to see. And even though it's – again, it's very subtle, but to me, I can see it. There's something there, and it's intriguing. And I, I included the, that Crystal Palace uh, – what is it? It's yeah, down at the bottom, a couple little images of what these – because you were talking about the sort of Victorian-type glass. So people want to have a look at that, and you'll, you'll get a sense of what I think I'm seeing. But if we come out of that and look at my number 3A and 3B, that's the comparison I wanted to show was um, if you, you know, inside the capsule. Oops. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I my gosh. Look at this. Okay. Now I'm only seeing – why am I seeing only one? Um, oops. I lost my image. Hang on. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Hang on. Okay. Click on the right one, Hoagland. Come on. There so it's we are. 3A three and 3B. 3A and 3B, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking. I have to scroll way down, Bass Barbara. There we are. There we are. Okay. Because you're not listed yet in the... All right. All right. I'm listing... Okay, okay. There's there's 3A. Look at all that. Co- that's coming from the moon. Yeah. Look at that incredible pink. Yeah. That's the illumination. Remember, they're really bragging about the big windows they have to look out. Yes. Well, the windows let light in, too. Yeah. They're not lying. That's for sure. <laughs> and there's a comparison. So and, they're, and, and, they're, and they're Snoopy over on the right-hand side, floating in, yes. in floating pink around. moonlight in his orange uh, um, you know, environmental suit. So what is 3B, uh, Andrew? Uh, I think 3B might have been a shot when it was. Oh darn! I keep doing it. I I can't I can't get back to the image. Oh, oh, yeah, see. sorry. That's because of me. Keith didn't get a chance to make a link to my items oh, because please. I didn't have any items at first. Okay. So. Oh, okay, okay. Let me let me go back. Okay, clicking. So on what's this. 3B? What's the comparison? It's the interior. Oh, that's the interior with their fluorescent lights on inside. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh. That's the artificial illumination without the sunlight coming or the moonlight. You know. Oh, I see. The moonlight is up above. The yeah. station down below. Okay. Yeah. 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 See the windows? Yeah. You yeah. see on um, see the stars? Yeah. I'm not sure why we're seeing stars. Uh, I, I think that might be a little bit of a I think anyways. I think that's poetic license by somebody at NASA. Probably. But this is basically just the illumination in in the cabin. Yeah. All right. Now hit the back button there. Don't don't there bother. you go. Okay. Okay. But the one on top, that's illuminated by the far side sunlight bouncing off the glass of the moon. You can even see it on the on the Moonigan's helmet. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's basically bathing. It's the everywhere. Here. Look at it. Yeah. And look mm-hmm. at how damn bright it is. Very sharp eye, Andrew. Yeah. Hey, there, Richard, do you want to explain why Snoopy is floating around? Well, it's it's used as a zero gravity indicator when it came from the Russians 
because they would always take a stuffed toy up in the Soyuz, and usually from one of their kids. And then NASA didn't used to do that back during Apollo. Oh, and, and Keith has now got an Andrew link uh, in FastLink, so you just click on that, okay? And, and then, and Richard, and, and then because else? we had so many astronauts going up on the Soyuz spacecraft, NASA decided kind of cutely to say, okay, we'll have our own zero-gravity indicator. And they they chose Snoopy from Charlie Schultz, Peanuts, yes, because Snoopy was the name of the lunar module yes. on Apollo 10. And I think there was a double Emily Dickinson entendre, because what did Snoopy do as a lunar module on Apollo 10? It snooped about the glass domes on the moon. Where's Snoopy? I don't see Snoopy. Orange. Look, look in, the, uh, in the upper panel, 3A. Uh-huh. Look for the orange color on the right slightly. Oh, you mean that little tiny He's thing? wearing a spacesuit. He's a little stuffed toy, Snoopy dog. Oh, I see. That's Snoopy. Okay. Yeah. You can see his head. Yeah. He's got an orange spacesuit. He's wearing an orange spacesuit, yes, which is the color of the spacesuit that the astronauts will wear in case something happens and they have to, uh, you know, survive in the water. Okay. Or in space. But, you know, transfer like, I don't know. But yeah, those, that's the color of the space that they'll be wearing. I believe the first animal in space was in the Soviet was a dog, correct? Yep, Laika. Laika. Yeah. Do you know that? that do, you, do you know that Khrushchev gave uh, two puppies to uh, uh, Jack and and uh, Jackie from Laika before Did she? Did Laika survive? No, 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 she didn't. Oh. She was euthanized in orbit because they didn't have a way to bring her home. Oh. But she had puppies before she left. And they gave two of them to the Kennedys, Khrushchev, before the detente where they all wanted to go to the moon together. Yeah. And why is this symbolically important? Because of Sirius, the yeah. dog star. Canis Major. Can, Canis exactly. Major. And the dog star is where some of the family is hanging out. Yeah, yeah that's right. If we're talking about animals, Richard, tell them the story about what happened with the Challenger. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know that for the last, maybe you don't know, because I've been, I haven't really been keeping it a secret, but I've been carrying on this bizarre, ultra-dimensional, ultra-dimensional conversation with Robin uh, for four years, since uh, Thanksgiving four years ago when she got very, very ill and then died a few months later. And it's been through the transmedium of mice, uh, mm-hmm. pocket mice and and kangaroo mice. Mm-hmm. And the pocket mice are very distant. They act like mice most of the time, except they steal stuff like <laughs> cutlery, silverware, uh, one important bottle cap uh, that was a memento that uh, Robin had. Anyway, and then they brought it back months later, you know. Sure. But the but the but the the kangaroo mice are the ones that are very social and convivial. They're the ones that will climb up in my lap and sit there and preen. And this afternoon, you know, this is a maudlin story, folks. Sorry about that. But I'm watching the uh, you know liftoff on tape of the uh, SpaceX resupply uh, mission to the uh, space station, mm-hmm. and I'm feeling really bad and awful because it's Thanksgiving and Robin's not here. And I'm looking at the screen and I'm crying. 
And this little kangaroo mouse gets up in my lap and (laughs) just sits there. (laughs) And I know it's her. It's the only way she can communicate between... I mean, these are wild creatures. (laughs) They act 90% of the time like wild creatures, except when they don't. And they, (laughs) they leave all kinds of artifacts. They're moving things around that are incredibly mean. I'm probably going to have to write a book about all this. Anyway, I started talking to Georgia months and months and months and months ago about is there any textual evidence of other people experiencing the same thing with people who have departed? And what what did you tell me, Georgia? What did you say? Well, I said that I hadn't heard anything specifically but then i mentioned to you uh, a book about dogs who make art doing very very interesting strange things so i'm thinking that there are more transducers than the mice but i have this unique situation where the mice are kind of like the sentience that's available and she Uh somehow is able to channel take control and it's incredibly fragile because if you raise your hand the wrong way they disappear. I mean, it's like incredibly, the link is so tenuous, but they're doing things that are very unwild animal-like, and they've been doing it over and over and over again in a million different ways for four years. So I started... What does this have to do with the challenge? I'm going to get to that. So I started thinking about this, and I'm wondering, is there any other experience? And yes, back in 1986, when Challenger, you know, died when it exploded in full view Mm -hmm. Uh, people were horrified as they watched the pieces of the spacecraft fall into the ocean offshore oh that was the 28th of january on the 2nd of february nasa had mounted a uh, ceremony to commemorate the sudden tragic death of the seven astronauts and so they set up a memorial they had family and friends and colleagues and all that in the bleachers there at Launch Pad 39, and they flew a helicopter offshore to where the Challenger had crashed and the pieces had fallen into the ocean, and they dropped on live television, covered by all networks, a beautiful wreath. From, oh, this is the porpoise story. From about a, a five, a 50 feet, something like that. Yeah. No sooner had the wreath hit the water then seven porpoises, dolphins, in synchronization, leaped out of the water in a beautiful arc and re-entered the ocean. And I remember thinking to myself way back then when I knew nothing and I had no idea what was going to happen to me in the future, oh my God, could it have been the seven astronauts embodied in those dolphins communicating that they were alive and well, but just not here. And on that note, we have one half hour to go. If you want to join us, I will give out the phone numbers on the other side. My guests this morning, Barbara Honiger, Andrew Curry, Georgia Lambert, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking, David Sarita. And Keith is waiting in the wings. Anytime you want to say something, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, Sunday morning. One half hour to go. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a uh, if you have a question and you'd like maybe answers or you have a comment or an incredible piece of insight, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. You can join the conversation. And I see that we've got Robert sitting on the blog talk line as opposed to calling in on Skype, which, of course, means I would have seen you a lot earlier. So let me open the line. And, Robert, you are on the air. Hello, Richard. Hello, everyone. Hello, Uh, Robert. Entertaining program. I hope it's also illuminating. Oh, it's illuminating and enchanting. (laughs) Especially the part where you said, I never heard his back interfere with his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) See, I knew I'd get you on the ear somehow. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't have the Julius Caesar disease. I had the Julius Caesar flu. And the reason is that people kept asking me last week, how do you feel? So I answered honestly, accurately. I feel like Julius Caesar on March 15, 44 B.C., after he walked into the Senate. Because I had a bug that uh, attacked the uh, tendons, the ligaments, inflammation, bones. and. I hope not... you didn't call in to talk about symptoms. I hate symptoms. Oh, no, no, no. I just heard you misname the illness. No, no, I'm, I'm calling to say that you guys have done great work with a lot of junk that NASA has released. I mean junk. It, it doesn't even compare with uh, the Apollo as, as far as details. But the color part, you guys have been able to bring it out very nicely. David, Sarita, and you? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, hey, whatever this, gets you through the night. <clears throat> yeah, the melodrama continues. I had hoped to be on with um, my special article UFOs and uh, the JFK assassination, which I finished up. We've been talking about it for two weeks. 
but I finished up and polished it off with uh, putting all the documents that I'd been referring to in one clear concatenation of proof that uh, JFK was actually killed because of his stance on UFOs and the plan to joint venture with the Russians to the moon uh, and a litany of other things. But it's on Substack. Uh, perhaps if, if we're on tomorrow, I think I may be able to do, do tomorrow. No, 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 we're not on tomorrow. Oh, we're not no. on tomorrow. Okay, next time. Um, Robert Morningstar dot Substack dot com. JFK's forbidden speech. And in that article, I, at the end, I appended the congressional mandate that demands a UFO report every no later than October thirty first, Halloween, every year from now till 2026 I thought five years why 2026 but it has a whole uh, list of all the documentation that they want maintained and referred directly to Congress every year on Halloween Uh, very strange things Uh, Stephen Bassett should have something to say about that because you know what the hammer attack on Pelosi's husband just precluded any attention uh, to to that uh, subject at that time. It was a huge diversion for a hell of a lot of reasons. Anyway, that's what I want to say. Hello to everyone, and um, I'll talk to you all soon. Okay, okay, well, by all means, feel better, okay? Thank you. I appreciate that. It was fun. Bye. Okay, bye. Um, okay, we've got another caller from area code 727. 727, you're on the air. Yes, Richard. Um, what is your, this is Stephen in Clearwater, what is your uh, belief of what these structures, what the purpose of these structures were? Were they housing? Were they oh, uh, solar cells? Were they, what were they, what were they for? Well, A, we don't know because we don't have ground truth, all right? When we get to the moon and we get the libraries, we'll probably find the whole damn thing in video to whenever we were part of the Galactic Federation and all that. My supposition is that they were built um, maybe to protect an earlier epoch of civilization on the moon, to protect it from literal meteor bombardment. Um, And it obviously served a purpose because at least half of it's in fairly good condition and there's stunning geometry on the lunar far side, which have shown up in the Chinese images, which uh, in a couple of weeks when we do another show after Artemis gets home, we'll kind of wrap up and we may have better coverage and we may have really good data because again, as soon as the president signs that NDAA, all the people in NASA who are desperately yearning to breathe free and to tell us the truth and show us real video will be able to. And NASA, the upper ups, the higher levels, management can not touch them there can be no reprisals and i think barbara that you brought to to uh, attention that there was another uh, concurrent uh policy directive out of out of the current um uh, uh attorney general's office that prohibits retribution to the press for printing or publishing anything from leaked data sources inside is that correct um, Biden uh, put out a new policy uh, for the whole federal government that, um, that going forward, 
that uh, no uh, media organization, now that's open to interpretation, okay? It might not be alternative media. It might only uh, be interpreted in a particular case-by-case basis to NBC or CBS, but any media organization or media uh, that publishes even classified information that has been leaked to that media will not be held accountable. Interesting. Okay, Stephen, back to your question. The other possibility, remember, when we're looking at the moon or we're looking at Mars, we're looking at other places in the solar system, we're looking at a almost like a, um, a core sample of a stratified time horizon with newer stuff on top and older stuff lower and lower and lower, which means we're looking at a whole series of successive artificial inhabitations of these bodies all over the solar system, kind of like looking at ancient civilizations in the uh, Middle East, going all the way back to, to Sumer. So it could be that a later but incredibly sophisticated civilization looking to to inhabit the moon, orbiting the earth, but needing a more earth-like environment over the whole planetary surface, decided to basically build with their incredible technology a dome that would keep the air in and keep radiation out over the whole moon. And that's why we see in certain areas of the moon, particularly near the the, the lunar north and south pole, we see evidence of very terrestrial-looking structures which look like they could have come out of uh, the Far East. I'm thinking of some of those um, Vedic temple-like structures, uh, Andrew, that you found on some of Keith Laney's imagery and done stunning poster comparisons. So if you wanted a shirt-sleeve environment and you didn't want the air to leak away, because we could give, we, meaning whoever had the money and technology, we could give the moon a temporary Earth-like atmosphere by just application of enough energy and liberating enough of the materials in the soil, right? Let's assume you could do that. How long, if the technology went away, would the atmosphere around the moon last? For the Earth, we know it's millions and billions of years, right? But because of the incredibly low gravity of the moon, one-sixth, any atmosphere we would create that would be Earth normal would leak away into space in just 2,000 years, which is like an instant in cosmic time. So if you wanted a permanent lunar environment that would withstand vagaries in up and down rise and fall of technical civilizations, the way you would do that would be to build a shell a glass saran wrap covering, covering the whole moon, which would be repaired by robots. And even if it wasn't repaired, the holes would be so tiny compared to the millions of square miles, 15 million square miles, that it would maintain an atmosphere that you could live in or under for literally millions of years. And those are the two potential explanations. I'm obviously not thinking of all the possibilities, the way to get out of speculation and get real data is go back with people, men and women, in Artemis and find the damn libraries, the archives of everything that happened on the moon and far beyond. 
So basically you're saying instead of a bulletproof windshield, we had a meteor-proof dome over the Multiple entire... layers. Remember, no single point failure. And the upper layers have been eroded and the lower layers have been protected by the upper erosion. And you can see that in parts of the moon in terms of the imagery that NASA's given us, that the Chinese have given us, that the Japanese have given us, that even the Russians have given us. And now, of course, with Artemis, you can see it. But through a glass darkly because they've been doing everything they can to screw with the imagery. It's so much worse than it should be given the stunning technological advancements over Apollo that it's not funny. And Robert rightly pointed out that we're seeing just a pale echo of what the original data should be in 4K. But we're not going to see that. And that 47-minute missing time period was dead warning to the honest side of NASA don't you dare do this, or we'll do something you will not like. And Richard, if I and remember the forty-seven, the forty-seven minutes converted to seconds um, divided by three hundred and sixty degrees is the Tesla Schumann resonance seven point eight three perfectly. So there, there's there's something very deep going on here. I wanted to point out something really quick, Richard. Remember the, the eclipse, talking about the real Artemis, the, the moon goddess, the, the eclipse was November 8th. Right about then, a story broke about sheep walking in circles for 14 days in a row, and it started right about there, right, right out. This was, a, this was a discussion being, you know, and I think Robert Morningstar is part of this other thread, and I posted on that thread that I thought it was the change in the physics. And because the, the, the torsion field goes in vortices, and so animals like the entrainment of the dolphins by some consciousness, or Robin dealing with the mice, the background physics, if the, if the animal hooks into that spiraling pattern, they might make the same pattern on Earth by walking in circles, depending upon how the physics is amplified locally, where the nodes are, the resonances, the harmonics. But yes, the eclipse, remember Maria, eclipses trigger measurable changes in the physics of the earth as she has measured at Stonehenge and other sacred sites, which are huge amplifiers built to amplify the background physics and make it usable again. Yeah, and the circling sheep, by the way, has gotten on major news networks. It's got over 15 million views on Twitter. So it, it's really got everybody baffled. The physics is changing, and, and people responded. Remember, after the election, before Georgia and I said this would be a time when people would kind of come face-to-face with their higher selves. Well, the election results showed that it worked. Yeah, that was – now, another thing is, for people who don't believe the moon has color, here's how I'm going to prove it to you. Really simple. Take a color picture of the moon and go in your photo program and take all the color out of it. And then look at the two side by side, and you'll see the color. Mm. It's there. Richard? Yes? Yeah. Um, I, if I understood correctly, I think you said that you uh, recorded the 40-some minutes uh, of video. From, a, from Artemis 1. I don't believe that's in your items. Is there any way to post it? I have to port it over from my DISH network source, and I haven't figured out how to do that because technically I'm not a computer person, never want to be a computer person, 
and Keith has been up to his eyebrows, so I haven't. But we've got two weeks now until the next Artemis show. So between now and then, I will port over in digital form from my recorder to the the pages what we got in the way of unedited live video from Artemis okay. that morning. And where can we see that now? Do we go to NASA TV? Where do we watch it? What they're doing is they're sucking all the color out so it doesn't look like what I saw live and what I recorded. Anything, yeah, you, any, anything you see on those links has been okay. altered, like like the Flickr link. You can go and find that, that video. It will look nothing like I saw live that morning. I understand. Okay. Well, I look forward to having it posted in that future Artemis program. We will, we will do that, yes. All good things come to those that Eight wait. Time. You know. <laughs> Another thing I posted there is Jose Escamilla's film Celestial showed the moon in full color, and it, it's it's further confirmation. It's a really beautiful film. You can really see um, everything in its full color there as well. Well, what you're seeing though on the on the near side, the color is the mineral color of the mare. It's 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 basically just different geology. If you want to see the domes, you want to see the glass, remember on the near side, it's almost gone. In fact, it's so trans, trans, translucent, not the word I'm looking for. It's cigarette smoke. Constitu- you know, it's like molecular size. There's nothing, almost nothing. How hard do you think it is? I mean, as far as penetrating. I have no it, idea. It, it, I have no idea. We don't have any ground truth. I do know that when Apollo went to the moon, and brought back the samples, one of the major problems that AT&T and Bell Labs had is they were trying to make a transition for long lines communicating from east to west coast, from microwaves to lasers. And the problem was that the best glass they could make on Earth, they needed repeaters every mile because of the light loss in the glass, in the fiber optics. That would mean 3,000 repeaters between New York and Los Angeles, which was economically absurd. When they eventually created fiber optics that were so light loss less that they only needed a repeater every few hundred miles, I think it derived directly from their imitating the lunar glass samples the Apollo astronauts brought back to Earth because I called up Rensselaer, which was one of the people involved in in the in both projects, Apollo and in AT&T, and they literally freaked out and hung up on me, and they would never answer their phones again. What did you ask them? If they had used their data from the lunar samples to create the perfect fiber optics for AT&T, and, oh. and they freaked out, because mm-hmm. that's, of course, what they did. Because the glass, as we're looking at it in the photographs, has very extraordinary optical properties. If you analyze the photographs correctly, it does not scatter. The only reason that we're seeing the backscatter is there's so damn much of it. But it does refract. It acts like a lens. So it's a lossless lens as opposed to a scattering medium which is exactly what AT&T needed to create the perfect fiber optics to conduct laser beams across the continent and around the world. And you're number 17. 
Um, it actually looks back. like, I believe that's the, uh, it says uh, Artemis 1, Earth Set Enhanced Equalized Deep Glass Ruins Darker. That's on the back side of the moon. It looks like it's solarized. It's the lavender. Yeah, well, that's because what I did is I really upped the contrast and lowered this and that and tried to make the underlying details stand out as also preserving the, 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 the limb. Look, look at, uh, click on it, and it gets bigger. Look at the width of that brightness at the limb. Mm-hmm. That's because so, you're looking through shallower and shallower and shallower angles into the glass. So you're looking almost horizontally, and you're going through hundreds of miles of glass. Then so what's holding it up in, in the air? Oh, there's, obviously, there has to be a truss system. Mm-hmm. which is made of much sterner stuff. It's probably titanium. It's a titanium truss structure. And I think we've lost a couple of spacecraft when they tried to land in the early years of the pre-Apollo era and they hit the truss or something else and they disappeared instantly, like Surveyor 4. And you remember one of the mission rules of Apollo that prohibited them from landing if this instrument on the uh, descending limb was not working. It was the radar. Remember, they had to have the radar working so they could land, as, as according to Was Mr. it microwave radar? Is, yeah, of course. That... It was an ordinary shortwave radar, yeah, KU band. All right? Mm-hmm. And Alan Shepard, they had real problems getting the radar to work, and they finally, literally the last minute, just before PDI, power descent initiation, when they lit the rocket engine to slow them down to land on the moon, uh, later, Shepard was asked if he would have landed in violation of mission rules if he hadn't got the radar working. And he looked at the reporter and he said, you'll never know. <laughs> so the refractive index would have slowed the radar way down. Well, no. What maybe. you were looking for with the radar was a, was a solid metal truss that's holding up the glass. Mm-hmm. Think of it as a huge bucky uh, Bucky Fuller. You think like nanobots maintain it? Like tiny. No, 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 no. They, they, everybody's long gone. It's mm. not maintained. It's 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 beaten to hell on the near side, but there's a lot of it left on the far side, which is why you get these dramatic optical differences between the near side and the far side. And we've got three missions. I can put them up side by side, which I'll do in a couple of weeks when we do the next Artemis uh, program. The the Barashit mission from the Israelis, the Chinese mission, the Chang Five and other missions, and now the Artemis mission, all are showing the same optical phenomenon of the far side. That's three totally different political systems. You know, I just found another image on Flickr that shows the the Orion and the moon, and you can see the color in the moon without even adjusting it. I can see it there. Look at that video from Lockheed. All right, go to the home page of the other side of midnight, and just scroll down to where it says. In fact, uh, we're running out of time here. It's 54 minutes to the hour. Let me back up here, and let me go to the home page. One more, Hoagland. There we are. All right. Um. Up near the top, it's, uh, it's, it's item number, the first one is the live link to, to Artemis video. The second is NASA TV. Click on the third item, everybody, okay? 
You got it? Says Artemis close-up of moon video loop. Yeah. That will take you to a Twitter page from Lockheed Martin. Look at that video. Look at the color. That's what I saw live that night. And yet they sent the video to Lockheed, and somebody at Lockheed said, oh, the world deserves to see this. So they posted it. Wait, which item of yours is it? It's the, it doesn't look like color to me. It looks kind of gray. See, you can't see color, Barbara. Sorry. Yeah, it's yes, brilliantly colorful. No, no. What you got to do, Barbara, is take a color photograph of the moon and then remove all the color and then look at – make a copy of each and look at them side by side. Then you'll see there's color because the moon is not black and white. It, it's absolutely not. If you – Remove all the color and turn, turn a photograph of the moon into a black and white image and then look at your original and go back and forth with your eyes. You'll see there's color there. Okay, on the home page, at the top of the page, do you see where it says live video from Artemis? David? I'm on, I'm on your item, so I've got No, the... no, go to the home page. Okay, home page, yeah. Okay, I'm home page. Oh, yeah, there it is. Live video from Artemis. The second one says NASA Live TV, NASA TV. Right, right, The right. third item, click on the third item. Artemis close-up of moon video <clears throat> loop. I'm losing my voice. Now, now, Richard, I don't see the limb, what you call the limb, the bright limb on this video. It's there, but it's subtle. Oh, yeah, it's the third item. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, Artemis. yeah. Richard, now, I, why, I, would it be, why would it be more subtle in the video rather than the photo? Because you're, you're going through 60 frames per second. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing a single image. And also the angle between this this oh. clip and the horizon is different than the other. Well, you can see the color in the video on yeah. the link. Just yeah, I can yeah, see. Yeah, there's it. a little bit of a red hue there. You a can little see. bit pinkish, yeah. Little. Yeah, there shouldn't be any color. Mm-hmm. And that's poor resolution there. I mean, you're looking at heavy pixelation. This is yep, yep, yep. They're not giving us the good stuff. No, this of course is not. not good. That's quality. why Biden has to sign the damn, you know, NDA. NDAA. But I thought the NDAA, Richard, just refers to UFOs or ETs and that kind of thing. Anything extraterrestrial. The moon is extraterrestrial. Just think about this. Think about this. The the total square miles of the surface of the moon is equal to about 37 times the surface of France. (laughs) I mean, so it's pretty big. So well, it's it's all right. Each hemisphere is equal to North and South America combined, 15 million square miles. So it's all dirt. There's no water. So there's a there's so much down there. We we you got to get way in there to see what's really on the dark side of the moon and this this cubic structure that the Chinese, you know, saw and then they allegedly said it no, was they something faked it else. afterwards because they were they warned they were the the Chinese have been publishing honest data, they just haven't talked about it. Right. Which is so amazing. And Richard, of course Richard, yes? Richard, it's the dark side of the moon. There's light over there. Why do they call it the dark side of the moon? Because that's a misnomer. It's like the darkest continent of Africa. It doesn't mean a damn thing. It, it, gets, it, it gets two weeks. It gets two weeks of daylight, just like the front side of the moon, the side facing Earth, every two weeks. But mm-hmm. yeah, the dark applies to unknown. Okay. okay, we are basically down. We're out of time. I want to thank everyone this morning. Uh, this has been a wonderful program. Thank you, dear. 
Uh, we will do more of this. Next weekend is already taken, but uh, it'll give us a couple of weeks to kind of figure out what NASA's up to. If the president signs the NDAA, which means that inside people can come forward, they can either talk to the press, they can sell books, or they can hold a press conference and all say, hey, you want to see the real stuff from the moon? Take a look at this, and nothing will happen to them because they will be legally protected by Congress. So on that note, until uh, we're going to rerun tonight's show tomorrow night for reasons I explain, and remember signals and the noise, redundancy sometimes help people see things they didn't see the first time or hear things they didn't hear the first time. Get all your friends to listen to The Other Side of Midnight. Click on the images. Join Club 19.5, and you will have an inside track as to what's going to happen as we walk through this incredible extraterrestrial doorway. So until next week, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.